Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, they the show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Aaron, when I was growing up in New Orleans, my favorite thing in the whole world was to turn on the radio on Saturday nights for Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, radio shows. I know that, Mr. Man. They also called them pre-podcasts. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, Craven, and my co-host, Movie Monster Boy, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. How are you? You didn't get in the cock duty podcast. In <laughs> which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres and discuss just how scary they are for other horror newbies like me and how effective they are for the horror gore hounds like Aaron. Like usual, that's what we do every day or every episode. I don't know. I'm off my game, y'all. <laughs> I have a cold again for my daughter. Thanks. Aaron, you're in a winter wasteland right now. A little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. This movie is actually perfect for the environment you're in. Otherwise, how how you doing, bud? It's just us two this time. Uh, pretty good. Yeah, I have never really had to deal with this much snow directly, so this has been interesting. I don't know. There are times where I'm like, God damn it, fuck this. Just want to go inside and be dry. And then there's times where I'm like, I am Kurt Russell in the thing. <laughs> it's one or the other. It is pretty wild uh, when you experience a first true real winter and you like step outside and you just see white all the way as far as you can see. Almost the point where it's blinding if the sun's out at all. Yeah, we've had that before, but not. Oh, it's six inches deep when you step out into it. That's yeah. where it gets to be yeah. wild. That and, you know, dealing with it piled up on the streets, dealing with. The amount of ice everywhere, just all of that daily stuff. My dog's taking forever on their walks because they can't find a place to piss or shit. But then also being like, Daddy, my fucking feet are cold. I want to go home, but not <laughs> finding a place so we can go back. Yeah. Uh-huh. Fuck you, Dad. Are they like that as soon as they go outside? <laughs> Bootsy definitely is. Yeah. That dog walks <laughs> yeah. out the front door, sees rain or any kind of moisture, snow, and is just like, nope, don't want it. So, yeah, that's been fun. Uh, I very much have felt like Richard Farnsworth in misery, just stepping two feet into the snow and sinking up to my fucking waist. So it's been wild. Yeah, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit about some of the real life horrors that uh, happened in misery. But I remember the first time when I was living for a couple of years in the Midwest, we had a pretty much a blizzard. And the first time I drove over black ice, and it is legitimately terrifying if you're not ready for it. Mm. I was pretty ready for it. Like every car on the road was going 20 miles below the speed limit, and it still felt just 
it's different from hydroplaning, but it's kind of on the same wavelength. Yeah. You lose control and your heart drops for a second. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't it's, want it. it's rough. But uh, speaking of horrors, yeah, audience, it's just Aaron and I. So let's just jump right into our recommendation section where Aaron and I talk about other recommendations, be it other horror movies different from the one we're discussing for the main topic, video games, books, TV shows, comics, etc. And we share it with each other, and hopefully your audience hears something you uh, might want to check out. So, Aaron, what have you got this week? I will talk about two things pretty quick, because we have a lot to talk about. So the first thing is, I, again, have been on a kick lately where I've been watching some Alex de la Iglesia stuff from Spain, and just some other Spanish horror. I also have the... Coffin Joe Arrow box set coming my way, which that's, you know, Brazilian, it's Portuguese, but similar vein. I checked out a recent movie. It's from 2022, but it's just now kind of becoming available on streaming here in the States. A movie from director Juame Balaguero. He's a guy behind the Wreck Record found footage movies that fucking Oh, okay. Yeah, we we are definitely going to do one and two probably on our show, FYI listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a movie that Alex de la Iglesia produced, and I kind of found this sideways by looking at some of the other stuff he was involved in and found this one and was like, oh, shit, yeah, I got to watch this. So this is Venus from 2022. <laughs> Starring Esther Exposito. Most people know her as a model and actress. She's apparently big shit over in Spain. So it was kind of wild that she took on this very, very extreme, ridiculous horror movie. The movie itself does a trope that I love, which is our lead character does a fucked up, desperate crime thing, goes on the run, ends up trapped, stuck somewhere very fucked up and even more dangerous, and has to survive, right? Great setup for any kind of horror movie. In this case, she is a dancer. She steals a bunch of drugs from mafiosos that run the nightclub that she works at. Ends up at an apartment complex, like an apartment tower, 
that her sister and niece live in. Is it the state of the art apartment tower like that trope that we always love? No, unfortunately, okay. no. This is literally the opposite. Damn it. <laughs> literally the opposite. It's in a shitty part of Madrid. Everything in it's falling apart. Most of the building is empty because people have moved out. But then you come to find out, oh, there's some Suspiria ass old lady witches living in this tower that kind of know everything that's going on and are doing very bad, no good things, right? A girl ends up in this tower, kind of reconnects with her sister. They have a fraught relationship. Her niece has never met her, and they kind of instantly bond. And then, you know, all this, again, Suspiria witch shit starts happening. There is also a random rogue planet that has appeared that is going to pass Earth and cause an eclipse. And so there's sure. all this cosmic horror shit tied into it as well. It's fucking gnarly. It is severely gnarly in some of its violence and gore. There is some great makeup creature monster shit happening in it toward the end. I think this is a very well-directed movie. The camera work in it is very solid. I love the atmosphere and the like general production design and look and feel of this apartment building because it feels desolate and abandoned, but it doesn't feel extra gross, creepy place like so many other horror movies would do. Like the building's empty and abandoned largely, and it's kind of old and run down, but there's not black mold growing in every corner. There's not graffiti everywhere. It doesn't have the overwhelming feel of evil shit. You know what I mean? It feels very like, oh, this could just be an apartment complex that's run down and mostly empty. The performances in it are all fun. I really dug it. It is on Amazon Prime. At the time when I watched it, you could rent it for $5 or you could buy it for $5. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to buy this digitally, I guess. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. There's no U.S. disc release of this yet. I bet there probably will be soon. And from what I saw, it's not even available through iTunes, Apple or anything. Amazon Prime is where you can stream it. So that is definitely worth checking out, especially if you like the record movies. A lot of fun. That is Venus from 2022. The other thing that I will mention is I listened to a fun audiobook. Again, a premise that I love called Mr. Magic. This is written by Kirsten White. It's very, very similar to the Candle Cove creepypasta that season one of Channel Zero is kind of sort of adapting, right? It's kind of the same idea. It is about a children's public access TV show that came on in the 90s that everybody seems to kind of Mandela effect remember. Kids remember watching it. They remember seeing it on TV, but there's no listings for it in old TV guides. Nobody knows what channel it ran on. Nobody really knows what type of show it was. It just came on at random times and kids would watch it. Every couple of years, it would change to a different group of kids. It was always six kids. There was always Mr. Magic that they would summon and create all these worlds and weird shit. And it was one of the shows that the effects in it were like way too good for being the 90s. And people were like, how was this show even a thing? How did it work? And then, of course, 
the show ends in the final episode, something super dark and fucked up happens. And of course, it airs <laughs> live. It only plays this one time and people are like, did that really happen? <laughs> Kids are falling over having seizures. Yeah, basically. Not remembering that it happened. Well, yeah. so that's kind of where this goes. So turns out the show was real. There is an investigative team doing a podcast that is going to reunite the last group of children who are now all grown. They've all gone their different ways. The main character, she has no memory of any of this shit. It has just seemingly like purged from her memory. And then you find out very quickly, oh, she was snatched up by her dad and taken away from all this. And they've been living off the grid for years with different identities. The entire show fell apart after this. Now there is a new group that's trying to do a revival of the show. So they're trying to do like a retrospective thing. It's very interesting. I think it does lean into exactly what I think you and I and a lot of other people are tired of, which is everything is rooted in this deep trauma. Every one of these characters has their own trauma that they're trying to like overcome as a result of being involved in this show. It's definitely a lot of that, but I will say the author is really bringing a lot of her real life trauma and shit into this. All I will say, because you really should read the book to get a lot of the details, and I don't want to like go through her story any more than this because it will give away probably some of the stuff that's happening, but let's just say she's a former Mormon, and she got out of that life. Now she's having to reckon with all of that and her family and friends that she lost and reckoning with how she thought of herself and breaking out of a lot of that negativity and a lot of that wrong thinking and learning about the fucking world outside of that community, right? So she's very much working through a lot of her own personal baggage and shit by writing this book. So that makes it extra interesting that there's that extra layer to it. But it's fun. It has a very fun, creepy, dread vibe. I would not be surprised at fucking all if tomorrow Hulu is like, yo, we're going to do a miniseries of this. Or Netflix says, hey, we like option the film rights to this and this person's going to be directing and it's coming out next year. Would not be surprised at all. It very much lends itself to adaptation, I think. So yeah, a lot of fun. Definitely would recommend. Again, this is... Mr. Magic, written by Kirsten White. Yeah, it's weird. I guess it has to do with what type of media I'm consuming, because when trauma is explored, say, in a book, for some reason, it, I'm not tired of it in the same way I am as more artistic horror, movie-wise, at least, like A24 and all that. I know we joked about that a little bit last episode, but in a book, it doesn't seem to bother me as much, so maybe it's just kind of the way it's portrayed. Sure. When it's obvious the artist is working through something in their artwork, it makes me appreciate it even more. So the fact that she is kind of having a reckoning with certain things in her own life through this work she made, I always appreciate seeing that. I know we touched on that with Andrew Parker a little bit when he was on our Day of the Beast episode. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to add that book to my list. I agree with that. I feel like I am down with the whole trauma exploration thing. When it is very much an expression of the actual artists themselves and them trying to work through something like that's where I do actually respond to that instead of it just feeling tired, because then I'm actually invested in, you know, not only like, okay, where is this going for these characters, but 
what does this say about the person who made this movie? What are they trying to say by making this? You know, I think it worked well. I mean, it definitely leans onto some tropes that are starting to get kind of, you know, overdone, but I think it was still a good bit of fun. And there is definitely some interesting novel shit to it with the right creative team. Again, if this ever got adapted, it could be severely creepy. That's one of the things where, like, reading the book, the vibes could be so unsettling. But because you're reading a book, fundamentally, you don't have music. You don't have imagery to go along with what's happening in the story. You don't have any of those other things. So it, it like, really is up to your brain to make the dread for what's going on. And there are certain scenes where you could read it and be like, oh, this isn't that scary. So you have to kind of supply your own, you know, sense of foreboding to what you're reading. But again, in the right hands, this could be very interesting if it ever gets adapted. And listeners, if you want to hear Aaron and I talk about how the vibes man can turn (laughs) around an entire project for the positive, go check out our Patreon, because at the time of this recording, our first part on the first season of True Detective is out, and the second part is coming soon. Again, patreon.com slash watch every day or only $5 a month. Yes, absolutely. But yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, that's all I've got. So what have you got? I try to stay kind of thematically with the season on brand, even though I'm in a place that doesn't have seasons, and it's just kind of the same all year long. I was very much in a mood for more wintry themed horror even if it was still Christmas horror, just under the backdrop of snowy fields, etc. It's so much easier now for me to watch movies just as a dad during the day with my oldest now at daycare and my youngest is still too small, really, that I could take time out of my day to watch movies. So I'm going through my to-be list and I'm knocking out a lot of these movies that are underappreciated or people recommend them or are niche or whatever. Ah, uh, to be truly the best of all the streaming services right now. It really is. I like, love it. <laughs> I spend more time on Tubi than any other streaming service I actually fucking pay for. My Tubi wish list is so much greater than any other. It really is the best streaming yeah. service in my opinion, at least for, for the context of our podcast. I mean, it always gives me material for recommendations. Uh But the first movie I'm going to talk about, which sent me down a couple rabbit holes, which I will also touch on, is 1970, 1972, 1981, question mark? It is Silent Night, Bloody Night. Ah, okay. Officially from 1972. T'was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was left living. Silent Night, Bloody Night, starring Patrick O'Neill and Astrid Heron. Yeah, Butler wasn't kidding. Nobody's lived here for years. Don't laugh at me. I want your ID. Some maniac escaped from Margaretville. Would you like to drive there? Also starring John Carradine. Was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was left living. Silent night, bloody night. 
Silent Night Bloody Night is, of course, a holiday-themed, I guess you could say, exploitation movie for the time it came out, but it's actually a slasher movie. Again, 1972, and it was filmed in 1970, but it wasn't released until 72, and then it was released again in 81 theatrically under different titles, too. One of the titles was Night of the Dark Full Moon. Another was Death House. Another interesting tidbit about this movie is it was co-produced by Lloyd Kaufman, Uh that Lloyd Kaufman of Troma fame, way before I think he started Troma and helped co-found that. This movie is such an oddity and interesting case study of where modern slasher went because I thought Alice Sweet Alice and Black Christmas were kind of those stepping stones into what we know now of slasher movies like John Carpenter's Halloween. But this movie predates even those movies. Uh-huh. And so I went down this rabbit hole of, okay, I want a better understanding of the slasher genre as we know it. So I did some reading. And of course, we talked about this a little bit on our Peeping Tom episode and Psycho episodes. Those are also considered proto-slashers, if not the origin of slasher movies. But I was like, where's the in-between? from early 60s, late 50s into the 70s and 1970s Silent Night, Bloody Night. And of course, it sent me down the rabbit hole of splatter films, which we haven't really touched on any splatter films that were filmed throughout the 60s. Are you talking about like Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff? Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. That's something we should probably dip into eventually, though, for sure. Yeah, so there were a couple of those that had already dropped throughout the 60s, like Blood Feast, for instance. Uh came up a lot as a really early example you also had like mario bava's bay of blood which was 1971 technically i I guess i was filmed around the same time this movie was and then of course you had giallo doing certain things pre-70s too that were slasher-esque and then you had the exploitation movies which were dropping around this time and a couple of them had already dropped i mean hell last house on the left i think came out theatrically before this movie did so the groundwork was there for the modern slasher as we know it. And so I watch this movie, and it has a lot of stuff about it that, again, predates even Black Christmas of the American modern-day slasher. It felt like it took the ball and walked, and then Black Christmas ran, and then Halloween flew, in a way. The plot of this movie basically follows, in a small New England town, on Christmas Eve, someone inherits this estate that was once an insane asylum, The people who arrive, the real estate agent and his wife, mysteriously disappear. The person who inherited this family estate had left the town ages ago and is claiming they want to sell it, but no one knows where they are, but that they randomly pop up in town right around the same time as this real estate agent leaving. Some tragedy had happened at this house that all the leaders of the small town are kind of covering up or like being quiet about. Meanwhile, you have this unknown figure who actually felt a bit like a giallo villain in the same way as even a slasher. Always like in a hooded robe with a top hat. You can never see them completely. And they're picking off anyone who kind of comes into the house and they're making it's coming from inside the house phone calls to people that we would later see two years later in Black Christmas. Interestingly enough, this feels less like a Christmas movie, even though it's on Christmas than other Christmas horror we've covered, Aaron. You see like Christmas decorations and you hear Christmas music, but otherwise Christmas is way more just in the background rather than a part of the thematic element of the movie. What really grabbed my attention with this movie was just the introduction because it's actually kind of narrated throughout the entire movie. And then you you find out who the narrator is later on. 
but the opening narration talks about like the history of this house. And then it ends with this person running out of the fucking house on fire and then collapsing in the field of snow, like in the backyard of the house, still on fire. And then it zooms into the house and there's just a random person in a robe that you can't see playing on the piano. And I was like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> and from there, I will say the pace is kind of all over the place. It definitely feels, again, like a proto-proto slash, right? I do think Black Christmas is a much better version of this movie. However, there's a lot of stuff about this that you can appreciate for the slasher uh-huh, genre. Like Mary Warnov. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. While the pace is kind of slow in certain elements, the movie even stops at certain points to explain things almost in like a PowerPoint way. It's worth a watch, especially if you're a horror and, and slasher completionist. It's an interesting piece of media, and I would say I think we should cover it at some day on our show. This might be a later, later episode, but I think it's worth looking at just from a, even a historical standpoint in the genre. And of course, it has the plot twist of who the killer is, even though I saw it coming a thousand miles away. I still appreciate it for everything it was doing. We've definitely covered more transgressive films, but it even had a little bit of transgressiveness to it which I always appreciate these early 60s, 70s guidestones for the genre that would come later on. So I'd recommend it overall. What, what do you think, Aaron? It has been six, seven years, I think, since I've seen this. A couple years before we started this show, I think. I thought it was interesting because definitely like you're saying, it is a slasher movie before any of the tropes were really established. So it's kind of all over the place mary warnoff is definitely fun i mean she is somebody that i am finding more and more like i really love her as an actress she's just super fucking cool and hot yeah she's the best part of this movie but the movie is all over the fucking place like it's a scattershot there is a killer santa there is a weird killer guy with fucking hush bandages on his face You've got me very curious. Like, I literally just logged on to Tubi and added it to my list. So I'm going to check that one out again. And it's, it's what, because like the whole thing is scattershot. Like you said, it, it's a mess of a movie. There's so many moments where it's a little bit plotting and you're like, okay, come on, movie. And then there are other moments where it's just like, what the fuck? What, what was the direction here? And so it was interesting piece of media to watch for sure. But yeah, it really does center around mostly just one killer who's hiding out in the house making phone calls from the house and attacking people at random, basically. Oh, and one last thing I actually want to bring up about Silent Night, Bloody Night. Another rabbit hole I went down with this movie is I saw most of the cast were people called Warhol Superstars, which that sent me down another journey. Yeah, And Warhol Superstars were like an art clique in New York throughout the 60s and early 70s that all were centered around Andy Warhol and like his artwork. They were basically his posse that would walk around with him to social gatherings and everything. And he would feature them in his artwork a lot of times. Shit like he would film them for a couple minutes and call them superstars of the art world. And a lot of these people were other creatives. A lot of them were other artists. There's a whole list. I'm not going to name all of them because it's a lot of people. But a lot of the cast, if not the whole cast, are we're all superstars. So I thought that was an interesting little tidbit too to this oddity of a movie. Speaking of oddities on movies, and this one I don't know has aged quite as well, but it was still fucking fun. 
I watched 1980 slasher movie called Terror Train. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 20th Century Fox invites you to join the boys and girls of Sigma Phi for their annual New Year's Eve party. This year is a masquerade on wheels, and the person behind you could be your best friend or the last person you see on Earth. Experience the most terrifying ride of your life on the Terror Train, rated R. Starts October 3rd at a selected theater near you. This is directed by Roderick Spottiswood in his directorial debut, I might add. Starring Jamie Lee Curtis, this movie very much was cashing in on the Halloween success to the point where the concept of the movie was originally pitched as just make Halloween on a train. Yeah. This follows a fraternity sorority costume party on a train for New Year's Eve. It's their last big party before they all graduate. Most of the students are pre-medical. A killer steals a costume and kills one of the students before they can board the train and just kind of walks around among the students in this train and starts picking them off. You're not sure if it's out of revenge and you find out later on who it is. And the movie tries to sprinkle in all these red herrings, but in the end of the day, it's exactly who you think it is throughout the entire movie. (laughs) That is one of the things I remember about that is just, Oh, that's okay. Sure. (laughs) I love, love, love the premise of this movie. I think it had a lot of potential to be even better than it is. I will say it as far as like Halloween clones and clones of other more successful slasher movies. It's not bad. It's still fun. But the other wild thing about this movie is it stars David Copperfield. Yes, the magician David Copperfield Uh right after he kind of exploded in popularity because I think he had hit fame only a couple years earlier. And he's really young in this movie. And boy, oh boy, is he a pain in the ass in this movie, probably in the same exact (laughs) way as he is in real life. Because, oh, by the way, David Copperfield has had quite a few uh, sexual assault allegations thrown his way over the years. Oh, really? And uh, your boy more recently appeared on the Epstein list, too. So, Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's fucking right. Yep. Womp womp. I was begging for him to be killed through this movie. His <laughs> character is such a pain in the ass in this movie, but I never knew if he was actually acting like that or it was just how he was because he was like kind of up his own ass about it's not just magic. It's an art form. I didn't look it up, but when I was watching the movie, it felt like the way they got 50% of the funding was let's cast David Copperfield and he gets to write half the script in which he shows himself being a cool guy performing cool tricks because I swear like half the slasher movie is just him doing magic tricks for a bunch of drunk frat boys, their minds blown by illusion magic and all that. That's where this movie lost me a little bit because it honestly didn't feature enough of the goofy overused slasher tropes that i love it didn't have enough clever kills it didn't have enough of the slasher being a slasher yeah frankly that was kind of a bummer because i mean half this movie the slasher runs around in a groucho marks mask Uh then they're like in a dinosaur costume and so it's wild and then the other thing about this movie that maybe has not aged well is there is a bit of the trope of cross-dressing or trans as evil a bit of gender fucking along with the themes of revenge and illusion. The thing is, I will say, I don't think they were making this movie out of any, oh, any bad place. I think it was more just they were so focused on having this twist or 
populating red herrings that they were just like, oh, the cross-dressing reveal because, you know, uh, there were other horror movies and slashers that did the same thing. And I think they were just more going for the shock of who is the killer. But it has not aged well. Yeah. So FYI, going into this movie, there is that in this. Otherwise, I get why it has a cult classic status. I don't know if it is, in my opinion, good enough to be a cult classic, but it is a ton of fun and it is definitely worth watching. And I'm going to spoil something right here. So if you want to not hear the small spoiler, skip a couple seconds. David Copperfield gets his ass killed, which was nice. It just (laughs) took forever. Uh, Yeah, this is one that I've seen a few times. I've never been huge on it. I don't own a copy of it. But like you said, I mean, you could do a lot worse. And it at least has stars that you kind of enjoy watching. Jimmy Lee Curtis is always fun, right? But it is frustrating because it just never lives up to the premise, unfortunately. Yeah, the premise is so much better than what we actually get. And God bless Jamie Lee Curtis. She's really doing her best to carry this movie. And I don't think it was her fault. She's a great actress. I think it was just issues with the script. And frankly, again, I think this movie just showed too much David Copperfield to the point where he threw around his weight. And he's like, oh, you want to get your little fucking horror movie off the ground? Pay me more. Get me in the movie. And oh, by the way, let me look at that script. I'm going to write some more scenes for myself. Yeah. Otherwise, that's all I got this episode. All right. Cool. Well, yeah, let's jump into the movie that we are covering this week, which I'm excited to talk about. I fucking love this movie. Heather and I had a blast rewatching this movie. This is, you said, the first time you have watched it actually like full all the way through. Correct? Yep, yep, yep. Hell yeah. Yep, yep. So we are going to be talking the 1990 thriller directed by Mr. Rob Reiner. This is Spinal Tap himself and Princess Bride and When Harry Met Sally, Mr. 1980s comedy Rob Reiner. This is Misery, adapted from the Stephen King novel of the same name, starring James Caan and Oscar winner for this role, Kathy Bates. You almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery Spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. I know you've been out. Is this what you're looking for? 
Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's sake. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you. Quick editor's note. Uh, that is the music from Aliens, written by James Horner in that trailer, right? Am I crazy? So, Aaron, before we really dig into this movie, one of the things this movie touches on, oddly enough, seems to be more relevant today, especially in the age of the internet. Unfortunately, uh, in the age of Disney buying Star Wars and post The Last Jedi, toxic fandom, right? So I thought a nice icebreaker for our discussion on Misery. And of course, you and I, we can handle disappointment from the stuff we like as far as stuff we consume, media consumption, etc. Has there been anything that has disappointed you, like media news or something that you've played, watched, read, devoted time to, that did something, whether it's in the storyline, the ending, or whatever, that actually affected you emotionally in a negative way to the point made you angry? Because as much as everyone wants to admit, oh, what happens in a show where fiction doesn't bother me? I think everyone gets pissed off sometimes about stuff they like when certain choices are made. So I wanted to see, like, can you think of anything off the top of your head that you wanted to share? Damn, you put me on the spot with this. I'll admit, one of the notes I had written down was, huh, yeah, interesting, exactly the point you made, which is, obviously, even at the time, this book is commenting on toxic fandom and extreme parasocial relationships. That is all even the more relevant now, like you said, because of the internet. So these are things I want to talk about, but I was not expecting to be put on the spot <laughs> with that exact question. You know, I can't think of anything that has really rocked my fucking world. I mean, I get emotional, like I get fired up. I get nerd angry occasionally at certain things, but it's never in a way that I'm still fucked up the next day. You know what I mean? Like, it's it not even, like, fucked up the next hour. I generally kind of let the stuff roll over me a little bit because there is so much media that I already consume that I admit is flawed and doesn't work fully. And, like, I'm talking about Terror Train, just doesn't live with the premise, whatever. There's tons of stuff I like that doesn't fully satisfy, right? But I can't think of really any major piece of media turn that I felt was just a betrayal. (laughs) Where, like, I'm out for fucking blood the next day. Where I'm literally spending time out of my life to, like, get on the internet and look up a specific person and then fucking jump through all the hoops to, like, dox them. I'm not saying that I would do anything malicious, but I'm just saying I can't even imagine, like, taking the energy and the time out of my day to, like, even put that much effort into something just because I was upset about a piece of media or something like that. Maybe the closest thing to that that I can think of in recent memory, and you kind of hit the nail on the fucking head, is... I am certainly a fan of The Last Jedi. I think it is the best of those three new sequel trilogy movies. Is it perfect? No. Do I think 
it lives up to the potential of what that series could have been? Yes. Did it set up a very interesting where things could go? Yes. What's disappointing is the third one, Rise of Skywalker, just so goes back and plays it safe and panders to like all the internet outcry and the so worst part of the fandom. Ways, yeah. Right. Yeah. They pandered to the worst part of the fandom and it pissed everyone off because it frankly wasn't good. Cause it didn't for satisfy anyone. anybody. Yeah. But that idea of toxic fandom has moved past again to your point, And this is where I was going to go with this conversation. Anyway, the internet has changed things to such a drastic degree because everybody has access now. You and I are doing a fucking podcast, right? Uh-huh. Thank you, listeners, if you care enough to like actually hear like what we have to say. But why is anybody listening to us? <laughs> right? <laughs> this is more of a good way that like you and I can stay connected and we enjoy doing this show because we're both fans of horror. So we appreciate anybody listening to us. <laughs> but the fact yeah. that like you and I like have a show that gets published and is out there for people is kind of wild, right? So the fact that there is just access, you can directly tweet at somebody that you want to get a hold of, right? We have directly tweeted at celebrities and gotten answers back. We have messaged people and gotten answers back. That level of access is kind of wild. Used to not be that way. It used to be like you had to go to conventions to, you know, meet people, right? Or you had to like bump into them by chance. The internet has made it to where like everybody has access and everybody's voices can be heard. So there is always going to be that tiny subsect of those people who take things too far, who get too wrapped up in whatever the thing is, who make it too much their own identity that they have to be as loud as they can and they have to be as sensational as they can to like have their voice heard and get their point across and draw attention, right? And the other thing that's so weird now is how much fandoms demand ownership. What's the word I'm looking for? License over the thing, right? They all want to like put their spin on thing and put their entitlement that, right? It is 100% just entitlement. You. You dirty bird. How could you? She can't be dead. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Annie, in 1871, women often died in childbirth. But her spirit is the important thing, and Misery's spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! And it used to not be that way. It used to be you were just kind of screaming into the void, you know, as you read a comic book and you get mad about XYZ thing. You go to see a movie and you just kind of grumble and complain to your friends. And that's the extent of your ability to reach out to other people. But the internet has obviously given people such a forum where all of those like minds can come together and collectively gripe. And sometimes it can even lead to change positively or negatively. Sometimes they can even get through to the creators who may or may not instigate play along and encourage right so much of the fucking snyder cut shit that we've joked about before is Uh wild because Zack snyder fully embraced all of that 
and AT&T slash Warner Brothers saw it as an opportunity to fucking make some more money, you know? And so that happened. And it only emboldened that group of people to think, oh, we can just keep doing stuff like this. Again, you and I are both Batman fans. Anybody that listens to our show regularly knows this. Toxic fandom's nothing new. It's been around since always. I guarantee you, you could go back to fucking ancient Greece, and there's going to be some asshole who's chiseling his opinions about whatever the most recent play was on some columns somewhere. <laughs> right? Fuck you, Aristotle. You don't know anything. You're going to die, and yeah. no one's going to talk about you after you die. You know, the one thing I can think of that comes to mind the most is. We had Batman for the longest time. They introduced his boy Wonder, Robin, right? Dick Grayson. And eventually in the 70s, people were like, yo, what the fuck is up with this kid? He's got to grow up. It's been 20 years and he's still like eight years old. So in the 70s, they instantly age him up. They give him a disco costume and they call him Nightwing. And now Nightwing is like one of the best characters in DC. (laughs) But then it's, well, fuck, now we miss Robin. So we have to have a new Robin. So they introduce a new Robin, Jason Todd. And guess what? He's a little shit. Everybody hates him because he's not Dick Grayson. Uh He's not the wholesome like boy wonder that everybody loved. Turns out, actually. Jason Todd is a delinquent in the comics. And the way they introduce him and he like gets recruited by Batman is he's literally stealing wheels off the Batmobile. Yeah, that's his introduction. (laughs) So everybody hated this character. And in like what? The mid 80s is the uh, death in the family storyline where Joker kidnaps this new Robin, ties him up in a warehouse, beats the ever-loving shit out of him with a crowbar, rigs the place to explode, and tells Batman, yo, you gotta get down here in five minutes and save him, or, like, his ass is toast. Yeah, it's Batman issue 428. It came out at the end of 1988. After that issue, that ends on that cliffhanger, DC had a big write-in campaign for all their fans. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this, but I'm getting to a point with this overwhelmingly people wrote in and were like fry his ass fuck this character (laughs) and so they did and the next issue is literally batman carrying this child's dead body out of this fucking flaming warehouse (laughs) (laughs) right that happened this level of fan entitlement to own this creation is nothing new and it's so interesting that stephen king was very much thinking about this shit when he wrote this book in the 80s and it's very funny that rob reiner in directing this movie is also commenting on that a little bit as well william goldman is also kind of commenting on this a little bit as well that's very much a major theme of this movie but it's wild how fucking much more relevant the movie is now in this regard than it ever probably has been Because, like I said, now we literally have people starting fucking Twitter campaigns to get things canceled or to get things made or to revive a fucking TV show that got canceled 20 years ago for various reasons or change the ending of a movie or demand that a creative get fired off of a project for something that happened for good and bad, right? It's wild that we as fucking audience members have that kind of access to the creative process. It's such a fucking disheartening thing if you are a creative because it strips so much of your fucking agency and your voice and your ability to make decisions. And it places so much more of the onus on people who fundamentally don't always 
connect with why you're making something. I have been talking for a long time trying to make this point since you brought it up. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think a lot of it, too, is the concept of once you make something and put it out there, it's no longer yours. Yeah. Taken too far by the consumers, unfortunately, because I think there was an understanding for a long time that, yes, I made this piece of art. Now everyone can consume it. But whether the artist believes that or not, it's still something personal, I think, at least. That's my viewpoint. And I think that almost too much power has gone to the consumer through social media and access to everyone. I was really just starting this icebreaker as a fun discussion thing for you and I, but since we tapped that vein, just real quick, something I was going to say. So I've never been at that level either where I was so pissed off I was going to go hop on the internet and try and find the creators, dox them, talk shit about them, anything like that. The more recent times I've gotten angry about something in pop culture, Mass Effect, and that was mainly because I devoted so much time to all three of those games, hours and hours and hours. Yeah, you, me, my wife, a lot of our other friends, a lot of people who played that video game series, we were all disappointed. And it was something yeah. we all collectively griped about. But the difference is we didn't start a fucking campaign to like exactly. fuck over the creators or the stars of that game or you know, anything on that level. We didn't do anything at the level of Annie Wilkes, right? We were not kidnapping old fucking what's-his-name that made that game, right? Right. The separate is, I bet you there are a few people out there who would have gladly kidnapped people involved with The Last Jedi if they could have the power to do it and actually get away with it. Oh, sure. Yeah, majority of them hide behind their keyboards. There are tons of people who would fucking literally kidnap Kathleen Kennedy today if they had the opportunity to because they're fucking weird misogynist assholes and they hate the thing that they love and i yeah just all of that all that i was gonna go back to that point though with the mass effect 3 ending i don't know if anger is the right word it was more disappointment and maybe frustration that did last longer than like a day i don't think it's a betrayal i don't think it's that deep-seated but that was the the most disappointed most negative i had felt about a piece of art that I invested so much time and frankly, like emotion into what we did. Like you said, the extent of us venting our frustrations and coping was we just grumbled about it to each other. We shared memes about it to each other using yeah. the internet for positivity, I guess, in that way of just finding memes and sending it to each other, to make each other laugh. And we just have fun arguments about it with each other, but we never would go out of our way to piss on anyone who still likes the franchise or try and like you said attack in some way the creators and then the only thing i can think of is wrestling oh they just didn't push a wrestler like they fucked over bray wyatt when they thought it was really dumb and made no sense but again the only thing i ever did the extent of that was either share meme or just straight up stop watching for a while that was it like okay if they're gonna waste my time i'm not gonna devote any more time into it it sucked you know, that's how you do it. And when yeah. something disappoints, you just ignore it or vote with your, your wallet. Don't consume it anymore. There's so much more going on in this movie, obviously. But while I was watching it, what really was hitting me is just over this last decade of just, I don't know if it was a mix of the rise of MAGA and politics with internet becoming more and more just social media as a whole. Or what? It plays into it because a lot of people 
have suddenly realized, oh, I really can say whatever the fuck I want to on the internet. Yeah. And nobody's going to do anything about it. And so that lets me lead into actually doing things to see how far I can push getting away with it. And then turns out, oh, largely nobody's going to do anything about it. You and I have always argued that art, especially horror, and I would also say comics, because for some fucking reason, people pretend like they didn't read comics for the last several decades. But horror and comics and, and art in general has always been political. But it just seems like in the last several years, fandom then became political almost in the way of hate groups rising, right? But now it's all just added all these groups within pop culture fandoms. And that was what was really hitting me during Misery because, again, like you said with Kathleen Kennedy, the vast majority of people, even the ones that are shitheads online, are probably not going to do anything. But to your point, and you know, not calling anybody out, but we've seen this happen to people we know. Yeah. There is a proven, documented, direct fucking pipeline from all these fucking pop culture nerd you know media related toxic fandoms directly into fucking weird right-wing hate propaganda media that has been proven we have seen it it's been documented over and over and over there is a very insidious effort to like strategize and find new people to bring into that fold by targeting these communities of people that feel, for whatever reason, marginalized, whether they are or not, and pick off those people specifically and kind of drag them into this, right? To the point where, like, people have actually committed fucking crimes, and it literally just started with, wham, I'm mad about a video game, let me talk about it. Yeah, you know? again, Misery is a 1990 movie and a 1987 book by Stephen King. They had no idea about the internet and fandom as we know it now in 2024. I couldn't help but think about that watching this oh, yeah. movie that's oh, yeah. decades old now under the modern lens. And, you know, I don't want to spend our entire conversation talking about just toxic fandom and all that. But I think it was such a big part of why this movie clicked for me. Because, all right, let's start there. Like you had mentioned earlier, this was my first watch start to finish. I've seen scenes from this movie. I've seen the scene that most people remember. I've <laughs> seen the pop culture like homages to this movie in the book over the years. Just having an awareness of pop culture in general. I know it. Misery is one of those movies that was always on cable TV even. It's one of those movies that I argue, while it is classified as mostly just a psychological thriller, I argue it's a straight up horror movie. But it's one of those oh, yeah. movies that your mom and dad we're okay putting on because oh we like this movie too there's something about Stephen king like even though he technically is horror and even though he writes a lot of fucked up shit in his books there's something about they see his name they're like oh well he's a respected author i like Stephen king therefore this media is okay to a degree but think about how many other Stephen king movies had come up to that point that your parents were like Oh, absolutely not. You cannot watch The Shining. That movie is evil. My parents were weird because my dad loved Jack Nicholson so much of that movie that he was like, all right, you can watch The Shining. <laughs> yeah, your dad's sitting there like Jack Nicholson staring with his eyebrows just being like, yeah. Yes, yeah. Carrie is another one that like, no, that movie is the devil. You can't watch Carrie. There's bad stuff in that. Stephen King, yes, there was enough of a brand recognition he had become very mainstream by that point. I'll get more into this in a second, but I think a major reason why this movie was such a crossover hit 
with everybody, critics, with audiences, won a fucking Oscar for Kathy Bates. Say it won. She won an Oscar with her performance, right? But I think a lot of it is thanks to Rob Reiner and this movie being fucking funny. Yeah. Darkly, deeply fucking funny. And so, yes, there is terrifying shit in here and there is just cringy, oh fuck, uh, violence in this movie. But this movie is really fucking funny. Everything with the pig made me laugh. I think that's a lot. <laughs> Every time. A lot of, oh, look, Heather and I just kept, Heather has seen this before. We watched it several years back. It was her first time seeing it. But it's been a while since we have watched it. And every time the pig came on, she was just like, that pig is so pretty. Look at that girl. She's a star. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, I can't argue her there. I think that is part of the secret weapon of why this movie was such a fucking hit is because it's genuinely funny. Plus, it's one of those movies from the 90s. They just don't make movies like this anymore. No. A mid-budget, very small one star, let's say, because Kathy Bates was a very much unknown, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah, like this type of thriller does not happen often. And if it does now, it's on streaming. It doesn't go theatrical. Yeah. Right. It's such a cable TV movie, too, which again is something that's. That's what no I was about to there. say was yeah. this was such a cable staple. I saw this movie on TV, on TNT, on TBS, AMC, USA. Fucking eight networks would play this movie constantly on cable. Yeah. It was an accessible enough movie that you could basically play the entire thing on TV and not really edit the shit out of it. Even the hobbling scene is usually just shown on TV, you know, because there's really yeah. just that one shot or you're like, <laughs> well, it's, it's a fucking shot, by the way. Yeah. And what's <laughs> wild is I have heard people again, Mandela affect this where they swear, they fucking swear that she knocks his whole fucking foot off and there's blood or she breaks his ankle and there's like a crazy giant compound fracture. It just lingers on it way more. And no, it doesn't. I think people have just made in their heads that, oh, there had to be more because I watched this on TV and they still showed that one brief moment of seeing yeah. it. You know, so I think a lot of people just assume like it's got to be fucking crazier than this. We're just watching it on TV, right? See, the Mandela effect I had was I thought it ended a different way. Sure. We yeah. still get to the same ending. I just thought the way the dispatching happens and the comeuppance happens was done in a different way. And frankly, it might have been just from a different spoof of this movie that I saw yeah. from. And I just mixed them up. But to kind of get back to my point of this being my first watch, right? Again, I argue this is just a straight up horror movie. Small is a good way to describe this movie, and you and I have talked about less is more a lot of times on our show. This is another prime example of less is more. This movie only takes place in really only three locations. Basically, yeah. Her house, the town, and then like 5% of the movie is in New York. Flashbacks and at the end. And that's it. And what, there's only six, seven speaking roles through the entire movie? And really only like four main roles, you could argue. Yeah. And most of the action is James Kahn and Kathy Bates. So it's a small movie. It's very secluded. And yet, this was one of the best movies. We I don't know if it, I had watched it in the right setting. I was in the right headspace for it. I thought I knew everything about this movie. I knew what happens. And I knew the sequence of events. But I didn't realize how fucking good this movie and how watchable this movie is. 
Oh, yeah. I saw a couple of people saying, like, oh, it's slow way. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, because every time Kathy Bates is on screen, I don't care what they're doing. Her in the Annie Wicks character, she could just be watching TV in bed, and I am fascinated by her presence in this movie. Well, not just her, but this is one of the rare instances where even the, like, sheriff investigating things storyline aspect, which is interesting, normally kind of dry in these kinds of movies, or it's eye-rolling, what the fuck are we, like, Last House on the Left with the yuck-yuck sheriffs. What are we doing with this fucking storyline, right? But I love it in this movie. Richard Farnsworth is super fucking charming, and his wife, Frances Sternhagen, is fucking hilarious, and the two of them together are, like, really funny and charming, and you kind of care about them, right? They're such a good couple of this. Even those characters you care about and you're engaged when you're watching the movie, right? Yeah, no. This movie is a solid hour 40. You're in, you're out. There is no point which this movie feels down or slow. I was also surprised rewatching it, too. It gets you right into he's in the bed in her house and she's caring for him by the time the credits end. It's that fucking quick. In my head, I just always think, oh, no, it's like 15, 20 minutes before you get to that point. And no, by the time the credits hit, it says directed by Rob Reiner. Next scene is he's waking up. You know, it's that fast that it gets into the action. Yeah, dude crashes his car, has a flashback, and then he's in the bed, and that all happens in maybe five to ten minutes. No, less than that. Yeah. It's maybe even under five minutes. Yeah, it's fast. And he is in that house 98% of this movie, too. Yeah. In one way or another. All of this I chalk up to, like, this is what happens when you give a fucking legendary screenwriter a already well-written book to adapt to a movie. It is the definition of efficiency of storytelling in terms of that screenplay and how it's written and how everything unfolds. It's yeah, great. It's like a great case study for anybody that wants to do screenwriting. Uh, I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with the screenwriting, but go back to even just caring about the sheriff character and those kind of moments, those small moments between him and his wife or him just investigating. Him dealing with the snow is almost like a humorous thing, but it's a very human thing, too. And so you have so much of that with all the characters. Everyone is ringing their A-game in performances here, really. And because of that, the stuff that we take for granted in action movies and other horror movies, acts of violence, there's very few moments of acts of violence in this movie. But when there are, they're surprising. They're effective. They're so fucking visceral. They're visceral. It punches you in the gut. Whereas in another movie, like a slasher movie, you know, they could be dropping bodies left and right and it kind of just washes over you. It's just, you know, whatever. Yeah. But but then something like getting shot by a gun. Yeah. This is maybe like one of the most cringe inducing, visceral, violent moment movies that has basically no gore as well. Yeah. Stuff like getting shot by a gun or breaking a bone means something in this movie more than it does in other movies. Because it's so sporadic, but <laughs> I'm using this turn of phrase on purpose. You're waiting for the hammer to drop a lot based off of what's going on and all the performances. Uh, frankly, this movie was creepy as it was funny. And Kathy Bates legitimately jump scared me a few times in this movie. And she's just a shut in farm woman. And I guess she's raising the pig, but she lives on a farm. You're never quite shown her actually doing much farm work. You find out later on she used to be a nurse, but otherwise she, I know it's not in the Midwest technically, but she seems like a Midwestern 
housewife whose husband has either died or left or she never married and she just keeps to herself. She might go into town and say hi to you once in a while. Yeah. Then you go into her house. It's like, oh, fuck. Not even Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, fuck. It's just weird and uncomfortable, but still kind of inviting in that cozy way. But this movie was legitimately like creepy, which I was not expecting that. I thought I was going to have a breeze going through this movie as far as horror newbie, what scares me, what doesn't. Of course, we've already talked about toxic fandom. Obviously, isolation is a big part of this movie. Power dynamics and you not being in control. Parasocial relationships. Parasocial relationships, yeah. And it's, again, without the internet as a direct factor. Right. The movie kind of hints at this in an interesting way, but, you know, obviously kind of think about it for 30 seconds and maybe not, but the book certainly does not. Annie admits to going up to the lodge and spying on Paul over the years. You know, what are the chances that she specifically engineered this entire thing what are the chances that you know she went up on this fucking mountain pass that she happened to conveniently be on in the middle of this blizzard when he had his wreck to pull him out of the wreck and conveniently had a crowbar with her right who's to say that she didn't fucking like ice the roads up or something yeah right i thought the same thing you know the movie hints that that could have been a possibility the book doesn't necessarily but you know, what's to say that she is tired of her, like, one level of remove from him at this point? You know, she knows she can have direct access to him if she wants. So she does what she can to, like, make that happen, you know? That whole idea of how directly can I interact with the people that I admire and the people that I am infatuated with, you know, I love is kind of a back and forth thing because. Do we really think Annie Wilkes has a romantic attachment to Paul or a sexual attraction to Paul? I don't think so. I think it is more of that pure, I love you as a person. I can't be without you. Like you complete me in just the most we're soulmates kind of way, but not a romantic or sexual kind of way. Does that make sense? I guess. We are meant to be BFFs fucking forever, you know? It's like a skewed preteen fangirling, kind of. Sure, yeah. So a question that I thought about that while watching us, and kind of tied into another thing I was kind of stewing over in my head during and after watching. Do you think Annie Wilkes loves the author or loves Misery more? Oh, she definitely loves Misery more. She definitely loves this character more because every aspect of that character what that character's desires are, what that character's motivations are, that character's backstory, what that character wears, what that character eats. Everything about that character is a construct, and it is all on the page. It is all accessible. It is all stuff that she already knows and has eaten and read a dozen times over, but she doesn't know really truly anything about Paul Sheldon himself. She knows the things that he has said in interviews. She knows the things about him in his bio. But, you know, she doesn't know any other deeper details about him specifically. So there is something to be said about the type of attachment that you can form to a fictional character where their entire being is on display and accessible to you 
versus the person who created it were like, you don't actually know anything about them. Good example. We can all still like Harry Potter as a character because Harry Potter is this pure little boy. All of us put our hopes and dreams on him when we were young. I didn't. I wasn't really a Harry Potter fan growing up. My wife was. I fell out of the series, so I'm right there with you. You know what I mean? Everything about Harry, everything we know about that character is on the page. and You can like grow an attachment to that character. But what do you really know about fucking Joe outside of what she talked about in interviews and bios, right? Because clearly, in the last <laughs> several years, we've learned, oh, she's a fucking weirdo, turf-ass bigot, right? So, like, there is a difference in growing an attachment to a written character where everything about them is there for you to grow an attachment to versus the actual person who's never interacted with them. So you don't know anything about them, right? You don't know what Paul Sheldon's favorite food is. Even if you know his weird after-book ritual of having his one cigarette and his bottle of Dom Perignon. <laughs> Dom Perignon, that, that, fucking that would me got up. me too. Especially yeah. now, like, with my current job and dealing with high-end wine and food and all that kind of shit now. Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. <laughs> like, I fucking snorted when that moment hit. Even though, like, she knows that ritual, right? She doesn't know what he likes to eat otherwise. <laughs> Meatloaf was spamming it. <laughs> spamming it. Bruh, for real though, that fucking breakfast looked fine. The breakfast that looked breakfast good. breakfast looked yeah. so fucking good. Like, like frankly, that's an ideal breakfast. I would try a meatloaf as well, frankly. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd try the meatloaf just for shits, yeah. But anyway, yeah, like, to answer your question, yeah, I think she's definitely more in love with Misery. She identifies with that character in so many ways. She wants to be that character. She relates to the character a million times more than Paul, which is why she's fucking so world shattered when she reads the final book and learns, oh, you just killed this character off. That's not just the end of this character and the end of this book series, but like that's the end of me because I identify with this. Yeah. You know, this is so much of my identity and my persona and just my entire life is wrapped up in this thing. So effectively, you killed me in the process. You murdered me, and I'm going to get my revenge on you, right? You know, she's not interested in actually engaging with him to find out why he made this decision. It's just strictly about how it affected her. It's that selfish, you personally fucked me over by ending this the way that you did. Yeah, willing to commit multiple felonies for misery. And then, as things progress, willing to commit murder and suicide to preserve misery forever. So, I agree with you. I think she loves misery far more than she loves Paul in this entire thing, even though she fawns over Paul. And this kind of goes back to the psychological horror angle to it. The thing that's really disturbing about that is just think about the type of person that's like that, that loves something that technically doesn't exist in the way of a person. So much you are willing to commit murder on the creator of the thing that you love so much, the fictional character you love. That is just kind of terrifying to me and anyone who has any kind of fandom. Yes, I'm talking to you, our listeners. <laughs> but if you are a catalyst for anyone's consumption of media or art, technically you're not safe in that way. And I think that's kind of what the Stephen King story really talks about because i mean uh, steven king at the time I, I would love to hear like what his idea was with fame at that point because uh, his career had taken off by then it's interesting he decided to explore this 
his career taken off, but it's still fairly early in his career, given with how much the dude has written and is still writing with this book coming out in 1987. But that just kind of sought me so much of just the idea of loving a fictional character so much. You could go to no end to save them, even if it means ending the person who created them and even your own life. That's crazy. Yeah. After you've done all the shit, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy is an understatement, right? So the other thing is, too, again, we've talked about themes of this. You know, the other thing that's kind of wild to like mention again that, you know, I, I don't think we can overstate how big of a hit this really was for 1990. We are coming off of a time, you know, the 80s was considered by many a Gen Xer to be the golden age of horror, if you can believe it, right? Everybody older than us is like, oh, the 80s are fuck off. The 90s are terrible for horror. There's a lot of great horror in the 90s. Uh, As much as you and I are like, we got to find the gems in the 2000s. I think that's also just our generational bias, right? We didn't grow up in it. Could be. There's good stuff there, right? The 80s was so full of sequels and slasher movies and franchises, right? We've covered movies from the 50s, movies from the 60s, movies from the 70s. And these horror movies were considered to be underground cult gems, even serious actual cinema. But there's something that happens when you get in the 80s where it becomes super commodified. And then it becomes Friday the 13th Part 6, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. It just becomes this thing where, like, every year you've got five fucking sequels that come out on top of the 30 other fucking horror movies every year, right? Half of them are already clones of the franchise anyway. Exactly, right? Which is a lot of the reason why so many critics were so fucking harsh on horror movies in the 80s. So it is interesting to me that this movie in 1990 was such a crossover hit. Critics with audiences again. Roger Ebert gave this three stars. He liked it generally. I mean, a little bit of it that I'm about to read in a second is like him kind of undercutting the movie a little bit. But this was a time that horror was looked down on in a big way. It was just commodity trash. Oh, God, everybody's fucking tired of this shit. And it's a lot of how like we feel about superhero movies now where there's just been so fucking many. Everybody has kind of finally gotten to the exhaustion point with superhero movies. So imagine if next year a superhero movie comes out of nowhere and like everybody fucking loves it again and it's a major hit and it wins an Oscar, right? As much as we fucking cloud that, imagine if fucking Joker Folly Adu wins fucking Oscars again, right? God, no. Anyway, it's just wild to me that this movie was so well-received, and that Kathy Bates's performance was recognized for how fucking solid it was. Because that conversation still goes on, that horror movie performances are generally completely overlooked by the fucking awards bodies because horror is like this ghettoized genre. You haven't seen it yet, but fucking Tony Collette probably should have been nominated for Hereditary. Yeah. I can think of a lot of other examples. That's just one that pops to mind, but... There are legitimately good performances. Kathy Bates is great. She deserves this Oscar. It was just such a surprise at the time that this movie hit the way it did. And that Silence of the Lambs hit so well the next year, despite Kathy Bates winning for this movie. There wasn't like a knee-jerk, oh, no, we can't do any horror movie. Horror movie was last year. So fuck it. You know, we're not going to recognize 
Silence of the Lambs give it all the awards. Uh, I'm glad you contextualized because I, I did think about that. This movie coming straight off the heels of the 80s, which was franchised to death with horror. Yeah. Because I, I after watching this movie, I was like, well, surely she absolutely deserves to win Best Actress for that year at the Academies. Surely this was nominated for other stuff, and it wasn't. And on one hand, I was like, well, it was a stacked year because I just kind of looked over the nominees over that year, and it was shit like Dances with Wolves, Goodfellas, Pretty Woman, all kinds of random stuff like that that we still talk about today as far as movies go. It was a stacked year, but then at the same time, I was looking at the Best Picture category, and Dances with Wolves won. Awakenings was nominated. Ghosts, The Godfather Part 3, and Goodfellas were the other nominees. Uh-huh. Surely you could pull one of those and put this movie in there pretty easily, in my opinion. Hell, I would say you could put James Caan's performance as well in the Best Actor this year, too. But yeah. it probably was the whiplash of horror through the 80s. They're like, okay, we'll give the nod to Kathy Bates because it's undeniable. But otherwise, we're not going to further honor this horror movie. And then even to take a step further, it's always classified as like psychological thriller, thriller movie, thriller movie. I wonder if part of that classification was also trying to avoid that horror brand, like it was almost a scarlet letter that if, oh, if we market this and say it's a horror movie, no one's going to take it as seriously. No one's going to review it as well. I wonder about that too. And kind of going back to what you said with Hereditary and she wasn't nominated, which she probably should have been. I mean, hell, think back even to Get Out. Get Out was nominated as Best comedy or musical? Uh huh. What? <laughs> it's a horror movie. Yeah. It's a horror movie. But then you also have those same critics and awards bodies and people referring to it as elevated horror or prestige yeah. horror. I'm God, saying. I fucking hate that. Right? You can't have both of those, right? Yeah. And Misery is better than most of the movies we've covered on our own podcast, but it's still a horror movie. I don't think it sets itself apart under the umbrella in any other way. It's still a horror movie. It's just a better made horror movie than most, but it doesn't mean it's elevated or more prestigious. Yeah. So that's one interesting thing about this is contrary to a lot of the movies we cover, this was very well received. This was a big crossover hit. Like you said, our fucking parents also liked this movie and were fine with us watching this movie, you know? <laughs> to circle back around to what I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of the secret sauce of this is Rob Reiner was a comedy guy. He had a comedy background. His dad is fucking Carl Reiner, who's one of the most legendary comedy writer, actor, producer, directors, etc. Won a gajillion Emmys in all of fucking TV and film history, Rob Reiner was on one of the all-time greatest U.S. comedy shows ever made for fucking the entire run of it. And then he gets into directing and makes some of the best fucking comedies and rom-comedies ever. Dude is bona fide in the realm of comedy. And this was the movie where he wanted to do something different. He wanted to break out of the mold. He wanted to grow as a director and stretch himself in terms of what he could do. Very much mirroring the Paul Sheldon story of, I want to break away from yeah. Misery Chastain, and I want to get into other types of literature and things that make me happy. And it's wild you say that about Reiner, because he had come off the heels of already doing oh his run at this point was fucking insane and like right? it was varied yeah like he had the couple of rom-coms and he had just done when harry met sally but he had also done princess bride and started off with this is spinal tap 
he already had a pretty varied directing cachet. And what's in between those? Stand By Me, which is an adaptation of The Body by Stephen King, uh-huh. right? So, like, dude came from a comedy background, and I think that's a lot of what works, right? So, like, here's the quote from the Roger Ebert review that I will counter. Quote, the material in Misery is so much Stephen King's own that it's a little surprising that a director like Rob Reiner would have been interested in making the film. What he does with Misery is essentially simply respectful. He brings the story to the screen, as the saying goes. It's a good story, a natural, and it grabs us. But just as there is almost no way to screw it up, so there's hardly any way to bring it above a certain level of inspiration. The result is good craftsmanship and a movie that works. It does not illuminate, challenge, or inspire, but it works. And I'll fucking counter that by saying the reason why this movie works is because it's fucking funny. Yeah. It's darkly funny. It's super fucked up. As much as you and I try to be general good human beings and we have worked through a lot of our bad adolescent, I'm trying to be fucking edgy, I'm a naive white kid from the suburbs, mild racism and mild sexism that we all grew up with, right? And we have tried to be modern, inclusive, progressive, loving adults. The joke where she fucking says, I'm on page 300 now, Paul. And it's better than perfect. It's divine. What's the ceiling that Dago painted? The Sistine Chapel. Yeah, that and Misery's Child. Those are the only two divine things ever in this world made me fucking lose my mind laughing and yeah then her just immediately being like oh yeah let's get out of here piggy yes i was fucking dying and not a word of that came from the book not a moment of that is part of the original text not a single reaction of Kathy Bates was ever listed out in the original story. It's just one of those things where, like, Jesus fucking Christ, they added just the right amount of pepper on this thing to make it funny, but also really unsettling. Yeah. And I specify that moment for a couple of reasons. One, Annie Wilkes is your classic kind of racist white person right yeah she is ignorantly so yeah that comes up in the book and that comes up in the book in a much harsher way let's say yes i used the d word earlier but i'm gonna fucking make fun of white people italians are white people whatever i'm fucking part scottish and french creole whatever we're all mutts i'll make fun of white people i don't care let's just say she drops some hard n words occasionally And it's so off the cuff, normal to her. And it's clearly meant to be a shocking moment for the reader that you're like, wait, what? (laughs) This is not an aspect of her that's really explored in either the book or the movie, which kind of makes it interesting that, oh, yeah, you've got some like fucked up shit under the hood here. And the movie and the book don't dwell on it. Yes. Right. And I was about to say that. I like that the movie changes it to be something that's less offensive. I mean, you know still offensive to all of our Italians, but it doesn't 
quite have the same connotation as the N-word, right? But it's one of those things where instantly you have a different read on that character. You're like, oh shit, what? That's a new level of what the fuck is wrong with this person? What's going on here? The way that she just says it in such a throwaway way and then immediately pivots to like shooing her pig out of the house that she brought in that she named after her favorite character that she had to show the author her favorite pig and then is snorting like the fucking pig and making faces and mugging and just running after this pig with crazy glee. It's so funny, but it's so disturbing and upsetting and cringy at the same time. <laughs> it felt like Kathy Bates did that on the fly, too. Like, I don't know if that was actually it could in the script. Be. It very well could <laughs> be. But the thing is, that's where I take a little bit of umbrage with the Roger Ebert review that it's just functional. It's just the words from the page on the screen. There's nothing more to it than that. No way. Uh-uh. No way. Yeah, I agree. No way. It's yeah. fucking not. Because again, there's so many little things that this movie does that, again, all the shit with the sheriff, guess what? None of that's in the book. None of that's in the book. That character is largely an invention of the movie. The sheriff buster, like, he's in the novel. But none of that stuff is actually in the novel. That character, the wife character, all of his back and forth, none of that is in the book. That is all super charming, and that's the stuff that helps elevate this movie, in my opinion. Yeah, especially given to what happens with him Yeah, towards the end of the movie. Again, changing the hobbling scene from being, spoiler alert, I guess, for people who haven't read the book. In the book, she chops his left foot off with an axe and then carterizes it with a blowtorch. Fuck. It is, <laughs> in my opinion, so much more fucking upsetting to see her take that sledgehammer slowly, like fucking Jaws, where you know it's coming, yeah, and you're just waiting on it, and little by little it builds up. And what's funny is it's teased earlier where she wants him to burn the manuscript for this new book that he's writing that's not a misery book. And she's like, no, this is the point where you're going to fucking burn this new bullshit that you want to do, and you're going to commit to doing the misery shit that I want, right? And she's just casually walking around the edges of the bed, flinging the canister of lighter fluid back and forth. And it's just uh-huh. kind of casually splashing all over the bed where he's laying. And he's just like, fuck, 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 right? The sledgehammer is teased in so much the same way. And then when you finally fucking see it and you see that foot just go blat you know, to the side. Yeah. <laughs> it is one of those oh, moments man. that is. So upsetting and visceral, more so than, oh, you cut it off with an axe. You can picture that because you've seen so many other fucking horror movies where somebody gets chopped up with an axe and there's blood getting squirted out of, you know, a syringe or whatever off camera. And, you know, they're clearly chopping a fake leg and it's kind of awkward because the axe is bouncing off the fucking mattress and this fake foot is flinging around. It is so much more visceral and upsetting to just see the foot go blat in like a direction that is not natural. That you're just like, oh fuck, oh fuck. Even seeing his bruised, gross, fucked up legs yeah. just fall on the floor and him scream or get whacked with the book that she like throws in his lap and him scream. Like that is so much more upsetting. And again, that's not in the book. That is not just. 
serviceably adapted the source material to the screen, and it is what it is. It's not the same thing, Roger Ebert. I'm fucking sorry. And that's so much of why I think this movie works, because it does absolutely like the best job that it can do of adapting one media to another. And again, that is the work of William Goldman, who is an expert screenwriter. That is the job of an expert director, Rob Reiner, who was at the peak of his fucking game during this period. That is the job of a great cinematographer, Barry Sonnenfeld. I enjoy him more as a cinematographer than I think I do his like actual movies, but that's another argument. That is expert acting from Khan and Bates. Yeah. There is so much more going on there to like gestaltically make this whole thing work than just Oh, Zack Snyder looked at Watchmen and said, I'm going to like recreate this fucking panel by panel, right? (laughs) It's not the same thing. It's not at all the same thing. And I think Roger Ebert, again, despite him liking this movie, even when he likes this horror movie, I think he's still kind of off base with fucking criticisms about it. Yeah, I agree. And and the thing, too, that's impressive about that is because, yes, Kathy Bates is probably the biggest catalyst for this movie being such a good adaptation. But I feel like if you didn't have the right person in the right job, be it the screenplay, cinematography, directing, or even co-star, this movie might not be nearly as good as it is. I think it was just everybody in their right position at the top of their fucking game, just knocking it out of the park. This feels like when you're watching it, such a competently made movie from top to bottom. Even movies that are universally praised, that's not always the case. There's always something that you feel like is a little bit lacking. And this is one of those rare examples like, no, it was universally praised when it came out. It's still universally praised. There's a good damn reason why it's still universally praised. And that yeah. whole scene, the hobbling scene too, kind of going back to like Annie Wilkes, the tad bit of ignorance, her monologue and the slow build towards her doing it is her talking about native workers working in diamond mines. Uh-huh. She's almost kind of saying that it was such a good idea by the people who own the diamond mines to punish the native workers so they couldn't get away from work. And that's where she got the hobbling idea from. You could tell she thought that was a great idea and not the fact that it was fucked up, a form of slavery. And then if they tried to run away or steal diamonds from the mines, they were hobbled so they couldn't get away anymore. And that kind of falls in line with the comment you're making about Annie Wilkes. And I like that they made that change from the book because I don't think it's nearly as effective if she's just dropping the N-word left and right. It'll just make things a little more uncomfortable, if anything. Yeah, because you don't have to go that far to establish that a character is, oops, kind of racist. You can go a lot lighter and still get that same point across, you know what I mean, in a way that isn't going to completely upset people. Exactly, and and I think the movie does that. And the movie lives and dies so much by less is more, and the slow build, Again, going back to what I said earlier, anytime there's an act of violence, it's so much more jarring because of the slow build and how well earned it is in a way. The payoff is amazing and it makes you uncomfortable. It shocks you. That slow build of Annie Wilkes more and more with each scene revealing her being out of her fucking mind is top notch. Yeah, It's just enough cringe, but it's just, oh, this is innocent fangirling cringe. Like when he first wakes up and meets her. But by scene two and three, that gut feeling of something's wrong is building more and more. And then the first moment of her losing her shit when she discovers 
Well, really, it, you see elements of it when she reads his script for his new book, and she hates that the characters are using curse words. But then you uh-huh. really see it when she buys the new misery book and reads it and finds out it's dead. And, and the things that scared the fuck out of me in this movie so much were the times he'd wake up and she's right there standing over his bed. Yeah, Those scenes were extremely effective for me. And you have to have those weird, awkward, funny moments in order to sell the more deadly, serious moments later. Right. In order to like right. have them have any weight. Because otherwise, it just seems really overwrought and goofy, right? We always talk about comedy and horror being kind of hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Just like it is fucking darkly funny, but also really upsetting and cringy when she makes the joke about the Sistine Chapel and then chases the fucking pig out. It is also meant to be really fucking dark and scary after she sledges his fucking foot and then says, God, I love you. Yeah, I love you, Paul. Right? God, I love you. It is also (laughs) deeply fucked up and funny because she's saying it. The camera is in that Barry Sonnenfeld close-up, exaggerated, right in her fucking mug. And the way that she says, I fucking love you, Paul, is the most post-coital, she just got done nutting so fucking hard. <laughs> she sledgehammer. And just rolls over, looks him in the eyes and says, I love you. But it's after she just fucking sledgehammered his goddamn ankle to pieces, right? Both of them, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You have to have that balance to make the stuff work. And it's so much more fucking effective than it just being dark and edgy the entire time. That's part of what works with the whole Jack Torrance performance in a way is it's unhinged. It's scary, but it's also kind of fucking funny to watch Jack Nicholson with his fucking eyebrows just going like, hey, hey, right? The build up to the hobbling and then like the sudden action and it's like, what the fuck? Whoa. It's very reminiscent of the Bateman scene in American Psycho when he's talking about Huey Lewis in the news. Yes. That effect of just, you know, have you ever heard this? And then like goes into that tirade of what they're talking about. And then suddenly an act of violence that's shocking. Yeah. Props to the cinematography. They linger on that one ankle just long enough to be like, whoa, what the fuck? And then like they show you James Caan's reaction and character of him screaming his eyes out. And uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, I think, is good about that because most people know Barry Sonnenfeld for directing, you know, the Adams Family movies. Get Shorty the Men in Black movies, right? He's also directed a lot of weird clunkers, and he's directed a lot of TV. I love his cinematography that he did for a lot of the Coen Brothers movies. Back the fuck up. You left out Wild Wild West, my friend. No, I didn't. I said he directed a lot of clunkers. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Whatever. That movie rules. For all the wrong reasons. Robot Spider. If, if yes. anybody has never heard the, like, Kevin Smith, John Peters, Superman Returns, Tim Burton, Robot Spider story, fucking look that shit up. Anyway. Whatever. That movie's a cold classic now, and you know it. It's not. <laughs> the point that I'm making is, in that handful of Coen Brothers movies, right? So, like, Barry Sonnenfeld shot Blood Simple, and he shot Miller's Crossing for the Coen Brothers. Those movies have some very upsetting violence in them, but it's very upsetting violence that is 
extremely visceral and very quickly off screen. It's stuff that happens and it gives you just enough of, oh shit, and then it's gone, right? It's just enough of a pow shocker that you're upset by it. Yeah, that's almost more upsetting. But it doesn't linger on it. (laughs) That's almost more upsetting. In some ways it is. (laughs) I think Barry Seinfeld is very good at that, right? And like it shows in this movie too, in all the violence that happens in this movie, not just the hobbling scene that we keep talking about. That's like the famous scene from this. There's a lot of upsetting violence in this movie that happens, and it's all so fucking quick, and the movie doesn't linger on it. And that makes it that much more effective because then your brain is still thinking about it after and your brain is going, fuck, what does that feel like? Fuck, that's got to hurt. Fuck what happened after that moment, right? Your brain fills in a lot of those gaps. And that takes some skill in terms of timing and understanding how to shoot something. This is one of those movies where it's very much a sum of all of its parts, but I do not think it is just an idle Oh, we just adapted this kind of by the letter, and it's surfaceable, like the Ebert review said. Anyway. I alluded to the ending, so like I'll talk about that. So spoiler alert for towards the end of this movie. Even the way Annie Wilkes is killed is different than the way she is in the book. Yes. Frankly, I feel like the way that they do it in the movie is more satisfying and even interesting to me, given the power dynamics throughout this entire movie, given the fact that this is a female antagonist. It sucks that we still have to make these kind of assertions about a movie and recognize it when we see it. But even now to this day in 2024, year of our Lord, a villain like Annie Wilkes is such an anomaly that we have to celebrate it when it's this good. So the way that she's dispatching this is just far more fascinating to me than they discover her body later on and she was making her way back to the house of the chainsaw which is what happens in the books uh-huh yeah which is such a weird <laughs> random way yeah for that to end like I, I i think yes it might be more theatrically pleasing the way it ends but i think it makes more sense for it to be that direct as it is and we see the death on screen yeah i'll say this while we're on that note and before we get into like some of the background too, the violence in the book is so much more extreme. Yeah, that tends to be the case with Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. There's outrageous differences between the books and the adaptations. Not just her chopping his foot off with an axe, which is funny that she chops his foot off with an axe in the book, but in the movie, she sledgehammers his ankle. And then in The Shining, he uses an axe in the movie, but uses a croquet mallet in the book. It's funny that there's like a weird back and forth. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah. After he complains about, remember like when he gets the typewriter from her, she's like, oh, it's just missing the end key. That seems like a panty. That's very inconvenient. Well, he's typing so fucking much. The T and the E, which are like the two most used fucking letters in the English language, those keys also break. (laughs) And so he's typing this whole fucking thing with three letters missing and he complains to her about it finally. And she does that, okay, I'm hearing you, Uh uh-huh, yes, valid complaint, I understand, (sighs) I just don't understand why you're so ungrateful, though. You could just be really fucking nice to me, because I got you this whole goddamn setup. Flips the psycho switch. You don't fucking deserve it. (laughs) And yes, she flips the psycho switch, and she takes an electric carving knife and fucking saws off his thumb. And so the rest of the book, he's also missing a fucking thumb. 
and just has a bloody stump from that. The other crazy thing is the sheriff character in the movie and his fate is all totally different from the book. In the book, a young, like, 20-something deputy goes to the house just to question her. Just do the basic due diligence of, hey, have you seen this writer guy? Paul chucks something through the bedroom window, and it shatters the glass, and he starts screaming and gets the guy's attention. The book describes it as, and then the deputy turned around and said the last two words anybody would ever hear from his mouth while he was still alive. And then the next thing it just cuts to is just him saying, oh, shit. (laughs) Which, like, that's exactly how I don't want to die. Exactly. There are so many ways I don't want to die, right? Oh, shit. But one of the ways I don't want to die is turning around and just having enough moment of recognition to just say, oh, shit, and then eating it, right? Anyway, she fucking rushes this dude with the crucifix from a grave of another victim of hers from years prior, like a hiker that she murdered. What the fuck? She's okay. like, got the crucifix by the crossbars, stabs the fuck out of him in the chest with it in the front yard, right in front of the front porch, and just repeatedly like stabs the fuck out of him, straddling his body. She throws the fucking crucifix down, gets up, walks off. Paul is watching all this through the fucking window. And then the guy, like, kind of coughs up some blood. He's still alive. He starts crawling away. And then all of a sudden, you just hear, like, the of a lawnmower. And Annie rides into view on a riding lawnmower and just slowly eases toward this deputy who is screaming bloody murder, rolls over, puts his hands up in self-defense, and she fucking runs over his like (laughs) left arm and head and just like annihilates this fucking guy and then backs over him and does it again and backs over him and does it again. Thanks for coming, bro. See you later. Four fucking times. (laughs) It is so much more ridiculous and upsetting in the book in so many ways. And so you know what? As funny as that would be and as like ridiculous and gory as that would be, (laughs) I kind of admire the fact that they like had some restraint to not just immediately jump to that. Yeah, the movie does better with a little bit of that restraint. Even though there is a darkly humorous edge to it, it's still very grounded, and that is more over-the-top ridiculous. It's definitely more over-the-top, right? That is 80s slasher cheese ridiculous. And granted, again, going back to what I said all the way during recommendations when you recommended the book, there are some things I think that work better in book format that don't translate to the screen as well and vice versa sure i think that shit cutting off the thumb cutting off his foot that whole scene works better in the book whereas what they do in the movie with the more restraint and the hobbling with both his ankles is more effective in the movie realm so i think the differences that they choose are good are smart make more sense again that's a testament to the screenplay writing of it oh yeah the movie still in essence follows the story faithfully so i bet stephen king wasn't pissed off about this movie in the least i'm glad they didn't do that but a part of me also really wants to see the version in an alternate universe where they decided to do that (laughs) scene yeah going back to restraint and less is more and smart ways of revealing a character to you they still keep her backstory as this basically serial killer nurse which is also a real thing that we have dealt with historically guardian angel or angel of death rather 
type of killer. And I know that's also in the book. The whole nursing thing is established from the very get-go when he first wakes up and she tells him, like, I used to be a nurse and she's hanging IV and all that. Yeah. And then you find out why she's no longer a nurse and the way that the movie does that is great. The way those reveals are really impactful. And it's hinted that she's killed others besides the infants on the maternity ward, but it's never like shown. You can guess that like, okay, she probably murdered this doctor or this person who disappeared near her property or whatever. And again, the book is a little more explicit with it, with like her using the fucking crucifix from a grave of another victim, which again, I think works well for the book, but maybe not necessarily for the movie. Let's get to the background of this a little bit. I'm curious to see how Stephen King reacted to this. Yeah. Let's start there. So for the novel itself, the idea came to him in a dream while he was on a flight to London, immediately scribbled it down on a note, wrote a 16-page outline as soon as he got to the hotel. Then from there, it just fucking ballooned into a short, and then it became a full-blown novel, tentatively titled The Annie Wilkes First Edition. Because the original plan was for this to be a Bachman book back when that was a thing he was doing. For those of you who don't know, Stephen King wrote a few books and shorts and took some older material of his and released it under a pseudonym because he just is so fucking prolific and he had so much content that he wanted to release. But his agents, the publishers, basically everybody was like, no, 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 no. You can only do so much at a time because A, we don't have the bandwidth for that much shit. B, you don't want to like dilute the brand. C, you don't want to overwhelm your audience with too much stuff. And just generally it was like frowned upon for like writers to release that much shit that quickly and other writers not get their shit published. So he kind of got around this idea by being like, fuck it, I'm going to create a fake persona. I'm going to release all this shit under that name. And he did for a while. And eventually a bookstore clerk noticed enough similarities in the writing, <laughs> kind of backtracked the stuff, eventually figured out that like the person who had all the copyright ownership for the material was Stephen King's literary agent. So then it was like, okay, fucking, of course, I guessed it. So he got called out. That guy did uh, some solid detective work like we see in this movie. Oh, yeah. So. Stephen King got called out, and he just kind of fucking owned it and said, yeah, fuck it. I have all this extra stuff that I want to release, and I can't, you know? So he's like, this is just a way that I could get it out there. So the, like, Bachman books are a thing. He even jokingly killed that persona and then released some other books under the Bachman title just for shits and giggles later and said that they were, like, posthumously released or whatever. Waka waka. The other thing I'll say, too, for people that don't know, because you and I have discussed this, the Bachman books are definitely much darker material. They're a lot more fucked up. They're a lot more serious. There's no camp or edge of humor to them. Not that any of his stuff is really overtly humorous, right? But to give you an idea, I just talked about all the violence that's in the book. This was originally intended to end with Annie murdering Paul, feeding him to the pig misery, and then binding the manuscript that he wrote for her in his own skin. <laughs> it was definitely going to be like three edgy five me, bro. So I, I was wondering if she would at least threaten him to feed him to the pig at some point in this movie. So it's funny that that was at some point an idea of his. Yeah. 
So this was originally intended to be a Bachman book, but he got called out for that and that whole thing blew open before he could, right? So this was still just released as like a Stephen King book. He has since stated that Annie and Paul's relationship is very much meant to mirror his own issues and addiction to substances at that time, alcohol and cocaine specifically. Cocaine. Cocaine. Paul's addiction to novel in the book is completely left out of the movie. We see Annie giving him the novel pills, but it is very much a thing in the book that he had an addiction to substances that he kind of kicked. And then her giving him the novel led to him relapsing and then monkey on his back really like needing the fucking drugs. And the aspect of the book is him weaning himself off of it little by little without her knowing. I'm guessing she knows that he was addicted or had substance abuse problems as well at some point. Possibly, but that's not, I don't remember that really 100% factoring in or getting explained in the book, but I, I might have missed that one detail. But a big reason why... Goldman left it out of the script was just, it was too similar to Jack Torrance in The Shining, right? He was also an alcoholic writer banging away at a keyboard and like drinking himself to death. It was just too much of the same thing. So they just decided to scrap that and kind of focus on toxic fan parasocial relationship side of the thing. King also kind of wrote the novel based on fan reactions to his prior novel, which was Eyes of the Dragon, and that was a fucking full blast fantasy novel instead of being like his usual horror thriller shit. So there were definitely a lot of people that were like, what the fuck is this Lord of the Rings garbage? Write us a horror movie, you coward. Wow. So a lot of his reaction was that. The novel ends with Paul burning a scrap copy of Misery's Return. And then later publishing the real story that he kind of hid away. I do like that Reiner and Goldman changed this in the movie so that he did burn the only fucking copy of Misery's Return and that the character can actually move on to new things definitively, right? Like it works better thematically for what the character is trying to do in the movie, I think. Yeah. The novel also has really long passages of the misery story that he's writing and i'm glad they left all that shit out of the movie they like occasionally talk about the like really goofy victorian era romance novel tropes and kind of bullshittery that's in the movie who's gonna win the duel yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) and a lot of those details are also kind of from scratch for the movie because what he's actually writing in the novel is she like gets stung by a bee And that explains her fake death because she has some kind of rare illness that she's allergic to bees and they have to take her to Africa to like go to this bee tribe that worships a giant bee deity. She has to be like cured through worshiping their bee god. Lore Summer Isle is there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's all this weird, crazy shit. And I'm like, I'm glad the movie left all that out. The Dick Cage Lord Summer Isle, not the good one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not the bees. Not the bees. Not the bees. They're in my mouth. Oh, man. By the way, that reminded me a scene that made me laugh too is when he realizes for the first time he's with a deranged person. And she gets at the typewriter. He just writes, fuck, 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 fuck on paper first. <laughs> yeah. King has also said that Annie was his favorite character to write because she seemed to organically 
take him in directions that he never really intended and kind of inspired some surprising empathy as well. To take things back to something that's pretty obvious, but we should state it anyway. Reality, real-life villains are oftentimes so much more terrifying than anything supernatural. Oh, yeah. As scary as It is, again, Stephen King's It, Annie Wilkes to me is so much more terrifying as an idea because not only could that person exist, I'm pretty sure multiple versions of that person exist out there, and that's terrifying. Annie Wilkes could possibly live next to you. There's a good chance that you have run into an Annie Wilkes in your life. I'm pretty sure I dealt with an Annie Wilkes at my job today. (laughs) That's just real in a way that, you know, fucking Pennywise can't quite touch. This story is very firmly set in Stephen King verse, right? Paul and Eddie Kasbrack from It were like childhood friends. Uh, Remember when I brought up Rose Matter a while back? Yes. One of the characters in Rose Matter constantly talks about the Misery series in his books. And I think might even hint at what happened to the author during his time with Annie at one point. Ah, interesting. Okay. Just a little like Easter egg for the fans of like the multiverse of Stephen King. Yeah, the two things that I noticed were in the text of this book. So I I didn't think about like, oh, yeah, this is going to be referenced in other things, too. Sidewinder Colorado is also mentioned as being near the Overlook Hotel, and they specifically mentioned the caretaker went crazy and murdered his family. Uh Uh-huh, same thing in Rose Matter. I think there's a throwaway line where she's just like, oh, my favorite author writes these trashy misery books that I just love. Yeah. He used to write them by a town, like, right by the Overlook Hotel. It's, like, literally one of the lines in Rose Matter. I was like, okay. So anyway, yeah, this novel was super well-received by fans and critics. It won the first Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel. It has actually been adapted for stage theater multiple times. Interesting. Most notably, a run in 2015 that was actually adapted by Goldman from his script for this movie, starring Laurie Metcalf and Bruce Willis. What? That would have been fucking awesome to see. Yeah. In 2003, the story was adapted into a Tamil film titled Julie Ganapathy. Which, what the fuck does a Bollywood version of this look like? I'm very curious. (laughs) And then in the Hulu show Castle Rock, Uh the entire second season is a prequel to Misery with Lizzie Kaplan playing Annie. And she's the main character, apparently, in that season. Yeah. That's kind of some background on the book. So the book comes out in 87. Producer Andrew Scheinman, who is one of the Castle Rock Entertainment co-founders with Rob Reiner, he read the novel on a plane, passed it on to Reiner. Because again, Reiner has already done Stand By Me, which is based on The Body by Stephen King, which was a big hit, still is, still is one of the best Stephen King adaptations ever done. So he's like, yo, this is your guy. Here's another book. You should check this out. So Rob Reiner, we kind of mentioned him earlier. Son of Carl Reiner and jazz singer Estelle Reiner, born into show business, one of the original Nepo babies. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, he followed his father, Carl Reiner, into TV and film, first via acting. Most notably, he was in All in the Family, like I mentioned earlier, just for you and me. This is our Batman ding, ding, ding. He's in an episode of Batman 66, the Adam West TV show. Wow. Yeah. He co-wrote the pilot for Happy Days. But yeah, he directed his first TV movie in 74, but then broke through with 
a string of comedies, unimpeachable. This is Spinal Tap in 84, The Sure Thing in 85, Stand By Me in 86, Princess Bride in 87, written by Goldman, adapted from his book, right? And When Harry Met Sally in 89, which, for my money, best fucking rom-com ever made. I mean, on one of those movies alone, he could put his entire career on. Oh, he directed The Princess Bride. Oh, he directed When Harry Met Sally. But then Dude went on and still put out Misery. And right after Misery, he did A Few Good Men. Yeah, which, yeah, I was going to get to in a second. So, like, this run of his is one of the most, holy shit, nothing but bangers. But also, these are all extreme cable staples, Mm -hmm. right? These were, like, constantly on TV, all of these movies. So, like, passively... If you are a late elder millennial to Gen X or to even fucking like Boomer, these are movies that you have probably seen a gajillion times and just passively they're always on TV, right? You even said you passively saw most of Misery growing up on cable, but never actually sat down to watch the whole thing until now. It's that pervasive. Anyway, he founded Castle Rock Entertainment in 87, which is named in honor of the fictional main town where a lot of Stephen King's stories are set. He makes Misery. After that, he goes on to make A Few Good Men, which he was nominated for Best Director for, The American President, Ghosts of Mississippi, The Bucket List, which I know everybody jokes about The Bucket List being like boomer shit. It really is, but that movie was super fucking successful. And he still acts. He still acts quite often. I love when directors show up in movies acting, especially when it's not even their own movie. Like, I love... That's always fun. Sidney Lumet in Eyes Wide Shut. One of the all-time best fucking performances. He's killer, right? Like, I love when directors just show up casually in other people's stuff. The Slasher Intruder? Yeah. (laughs) That one? (laughs) Fucking Sam Raimi. Rob Reiner plays DiCaprio's dad in a couple of scenes of uh, Wolf of Wall Street, and he's fucking hilarious because he is clearly... Just as much of an adrenaline junkie, greedy asshole as DiCaprio's character in that, but he is also so over DiCaprio's bullshit. (laughs) He's just exhausted. (laughs) Called him Mad Max because of his hair trigger temper, which could be set off by something as innocuous as a ringing telephone. Who the fuck has the goddamn gall to call his house on a Tuesday night? God damn it! Oh, please, tell me something I don't know. I wait all week for the fucking equalizer, and I have to fucking... Hello? You gotta pump those numbers up. Yeah. Rob Reiner's fucking hilarious in that movie. And guess what? He plays the helicopter pilot in uh, Misery. So anyway, Spinal Tap, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally. Guess what? They're all in the fucking Library of Congress's National Film Registry. Whatever. You might think it's cheesy cable bullshit boomer movies whatever they're all fucking good and i will stand by that whatever this is final tap rules yeah it's so fucking funny even though so from here they reach out to king he is initially hesitant to sell the rights for the novel because he felt like it was largely unfilmable he was kind of wishy-washy on some of the prior adaptations of his work but he was very impressed by reiner's work on stand by me that he agreed to sell only if Reiner was the one who directed and oversaw the adaptation. Reiner connected, like I said, with the story from the standpoint that, like Paul, he was kind of trying to move away from what he knew and was known for, which in this case was comedy, and kind of 
grow as a storyteller by stretching himself and doing something a little bit different, right? Reiner prepped by watching every fucking Hitchcock movie he could get his hands on to, like, really learn how to do a thriller. From here, he made the offer to screenwriter William Goldman to adapt the novel. They had collaborated previously on The Princess Bride, like I mentioned earlier, which Goldman adapted for the screen from his own novel. So that gets us to William Goldman. This is a novelist, playwright, screenwriter, two-time Oscar winner, like, big deal guy. But this was at a point in his career where he was in a little bit of a slump. His brother is also a playwright and screenwriter, James Goldman. He won a fucking Oscar for Lion in Winter. They co-wrote several projects, and they lived and collaborated with John Kander, who was himself a successful musical composer. He's the guy who wrote the fucking music for Cabaret and Chicago. So it's kind of wild that all of them live together. It is very much in the same way funny that there's that famous anecdote about Kathy Bates, where at one point in time in the 80s, she was friends with and shared an apartment in Silver Lake with Francis McDormand, Joel and Ethan Cohen, Holly Hunter, and Sam and Ted Raimi. Wow. All of them are friends. They were all like in and out of the same apartment at various times. Wild synchronicity. I just bring up Intruder randomly as an example. Yeah. So the Raimis were friends with the Cohen brothers. The Coens worked on the Evil Dead movies. Francis McDormand fucking married Ethan Cohen. Holly Hunter is in Raising Arizona. There's just all this fucking crossover between that group of people, right? It just, it made sense. So it's kind of funny that, again, William Goldman kind of had the same situation where, like, between his brother and John Kander, there's, like, four Oscars between all of them. Goldman's breakout was his first produced screenplay. I don't know if you've heard of it. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. Which was the most expensive screenplay sale in film history up to that point. It was $400,000. He obviously won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. That movie won best cinematography and score and song and it was nominated for like director and picture he kind of wrote this string of other novels and screenplays and shit into the 70s he wrote the princess bride in 1973 which obviously didn't get adapted into a movie until the 80s he wrote the novel and the screenplay for marathon man which fucking rocks by the way he sold that screenplay for four hundred and fifty thousand fucking dollars Wow. And then he wrote the book and the screenplay for Magic in 1976, which is the weird Anthony Hopkins is a ventriloquist and maybe his dummy comes to life and kills people movie, which right now, like if I'm remembering correctly, either James Wan or Jordan Peele is producing a remake of that for Sam Raimi to direct. Okay. You have my attention now. Uh huh. So anyway, he sold the screenplay for that for like a million dollars. He did the adaptation of Ira Levin's Stepford Wives in 1975. And then he wrote All the President's Men in 76, which he won his second Academy Award for. He also wrote A Bridge Too Far in 1977, which starred James Caan. So after that whole big giant run, this is where he has like a string of screenplays that just don't fucking get made. Tons of stuff that goes into development hell just never happens. And then a bunch of novels that don't hit, right? 
So he just kind of says, fuck it. And he kind of light retires. He writes a nonfiction memoir called Adventures in the Screen Trade, which is essential fucking reading for anybody that's interested in getting into like the business. You have heard the opening line, which is nobody knows anything, right? Yeah. That famous little bit right there. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Is from this novel, which like I said, is absolutely essential if you are interested in movies and the history of cinema and like Hollywood and screenwriting, read that fucking book. Anyway, he made a solid comeback in the late eighties with the princess bride and misery and eventually became a big script doctor in the nineties. He worked on twins, a few good men Indecent proposal last action hero malice, which I plugged some Alec Baldwin audio bits into our last episode, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I don't know if that'll go over some people's heads, but just know that's what it's from if you didn't immediately like understand what that reference was. And so, listeners, I texted Aaron, I was just like, what's this from? Because I think it's Hugo Weaving. <laughs> <laughs> I am God. I am God. Anyway. It's a good fucking monologue. He also did script work on Dolores Claiborne, which is another Stephen King adaptation starring Kathy Bates. Extreme Measures, Chaplin, Maverick, The Chamber, The Ghost of the Darkness, which that's a kind of a fucking rad movie by Stephen Hopkins about killer lions in Africa that I like. And then he worked with Stephen King again to adapt Hearts in Atlantis and most baffling Dreamcatcher. Oh, wow. Fucking William Goldman is the one who wrote the screenplay for fucking Dreamcatcher, which is an astounding astoundingly awful baffling movie that movie is insane crazy pedigree because he wrote the screenplay for it and fucking lawrence kasdan writer of fucking empire strikes back and raiders of the lost ark and the big chill and silverado dude fucking directed dreamcatcher william goldman wrote it and frankly the cast of that movie is great that movie's terrible and that's one of the craziest stephen king i am high on fucking codeine recovering from an injury i don't remember writing this fucking novel about aliens yeah it's bug nuts we will do a commentary track on that one day anyway so goldman was like specifically enamored with the whole hobbling scene in the novel he was like that's the best shit i fucking love this i want to write this the studio from there initially pursued jessica lang roseanne barr barbara streisand rosie o'donnell Angelica Houston, who turned it down because she was filming The Grifters, which, great move. But also, Angelica Houston would have been too sexy in this movie. Yeah. It would have been like weird chemistry between her and James Conn. That's undeniable, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and also Bette Midler, which like, what the fuck would that movie be? I'm curious about the Bette Midler casting, actually. Sure. But otherwise, like... She turned it down. Bette Midler turned it down because she thought it was too fucking violent. Whatever. And she has since stated like she regrets the fuck out of turning it down. But anyway, Goldman specifically recommended Kathy Bates because he had seen her on stage and was like, yo, this is the one. Bates showed up, got two sentences into her audition, and Reiner was like, that's it. You're good. Call your mom and tell her you got the part. So that gets us to Kathy Bates. Born in Memphis, Tennessee. Studied theater at the Southern Methodist University in Texas before moving to New York. She landed her first screen role. And the Milos Foreman comedy taking off in 1970. 1970, 20 years before this movie, she was already acting and just, she paid her fucking dues, right? 
she alternated between stage, TV, and film roles for those two decades. She's in Robert Altman's Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is a terrible title, alongside Sandy Dennis, who is in what movie that we covered on the show? Sandy Dennis. God told me to. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah. Karen Black from Trilogy of Terror, Burnt Offerings, The Last Horror Film, Cut and Run, Invaders from Mars, and House of a Thousand Corpses, all of which have come up on this show, and Mark Patton, who is the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. What a fucking wild cast that has so much horror background. Yeah, really. Robert (laughs) Altman musical comedy. Anyway, she's nominated for Best Actress Tony in 83 for Night Mother. But Misery was this big breakthrough for her, right? And obviously she won the fucking Golden Globe for Best Actress and the Academy Award for Best Actress. And then after this, she goes on to star in Dolores Claiborne, which Stephen King wrote for her specifically. Really? Okay. Yeah. He like loved her performance of Misery and was like, yo, I'm writing a novel. I want you to play the lead character. I'm writing the screenplay and I'm writing this for you. You know, and then from there, Titanic, Primary Colors, The Water Boy, About Schmidt. She's got a fucking great arc in Six Feet Under. Fucking forgot. She's in Waterboy as the mom. I totally forget oh, yeah. about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Foosball. You playing the foosball behind my back? The only reason I'm doing it is so so I can go to school. School? You going to school? Ow! Oh, sorry, Mama. I wanted to tell you. You off Galavan with your fancy foosball friends at school while I'm sitting here all day with nobody to keep me company except Steve? The chickens are coming home to roost, Bobby Boucher. You reap the fruit of your selfish ways. You're going to lose all your fancy foosball games, and you're going to fail your big exam because school is the devil. (gasps) Everything is the devil to you, mama. Had her own show, Harry's Law, for a couple of seasons. She is in a few different seasons of American Horror Story where she's fucking great. She jumped on the show in season three, which was the like witches in Nola. Oh, mon ami. She plays Madame Lalaurie. Oh, mon ami. Yeah. <laughs> then most recently, she's in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which I hear is a fucking delight. Anyway, so Reiner in the studio, since they like had an unknown playing Annie with Kathy Bates, they wanted a major, major star to play Paul. And that way, there's some audience recognition. He's a famous writer, so we have to have a famous actor to play him. That only makes sense. This role was originally offered to, checks notes, every white male actor of the appropriate age working in Hollywood at this fucking time. William Hurt, Richard Dreyfuss, who had previously worked with Reiner on Stand By Me and regretted not taking the lead role in When Harry Met Sally that he was offered. Man, that's a what if, uh-huh. too. Michael Douglas, Kevin Klein, Harrison Ford, Gene Hackman, Robert De Niro, Ed O'Neill, Mel Gibson, Bruce Willis, Jeff Daniels, Jack Nicholson, Robert Redford, Bill Murray, Al Pacino, Ed Harris, John Hurd, Warren Beatty, who never actually turned the role down, but was really involved with developing the script and the story and just kind of didn't give them an answer. And finally, they were just like, fuck it, we're moving on. But he was the original, actual original choice. Interesting. Okay. 
Wonder what happened there. This is what happened. <laughs> Every single one of these fucking guys was all turned off by the idea of being in bed through most of the movie and being a largely passive and reactionary character. Literally every single one of them just had too much of their fucking egos going around. I just don't want to be a fucking cuck in a bed (laughs) this entire movie. (laughs) Whatever, that seems like a good gig to me. Khan was dead fucking last on this list. Again, he ended up shooting 15 weeks in the fucking bed, and he hated it, and he was miserable, exactly like all these other guys figured it would be, but he did it, and he's fucking awesome in this movie, right? So that gets us into James Caan, obviously. Born in New York, bounced around a bunch of colleges before he landed at the Neighborhood Playhouse Theater in New York City, where he studied under Sanford Meisner. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was in a bunch of off-Broadway shows in the 60s. He co-starred in Howard Hawks' 1966 Western El Dorado alongside John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. So like, okay, that's your start. Sure. He's in Robert Altman's second movie, Countdown. He's in the 1969 road drama, The Rain People, which was directed by his former schoolmate, checks notes, um, Francis Ford Coppola, whoever that is. Wow. Really, truly broke out in 1971 in a TV movie, Brian's Song co-starring Billy D. Williams, fucking Lando himself, right? That was like a huge TV movie at the time. Cole 45, the best uh-huh. salt in all the galaxy. So after Brian's song, he's in a little movie called The Godfather. He's in The Gambler, Freebie and the Bean, fucking Rollerball, which kicks ass, The Killer Elite, which kicks ass, A Bridge Too Far, which kicks ass, Comes a Horseman, which kicks ass, and Thief, which fucking kicks ass. Dude had a fucking great run of awesome shit. James Caan in Michael Mann's Thief is one of my favorite male crime shithead performances of all time. He's so fucking good in that movie. You did not ask about us. You didn't ask what kind of people we are. There was a child waiting, and you are denying us him and him us. Who the hell are you? Don't make a scene. Our criteria. Your criteria? Your criteria are so far up your ass, they can't see daylight. This is bullshit. It's not happening. Let's go. Look, I got some ABC-type information for you, lady. I was state-raised, and this is a dead place. A child in eight-by-four green walls. After a while, you tell the walls, my life is yours. Would you grow up in the suburbs? Yes. Right, right. What are you looking at? Huh? Hindsight is twenty twenty, but I mean, he was the right call for this. Absolutely. So yeah, after this wild period, he starts turning down a shitload of roles that then became massive for other actors who did take them. So he turns down lead roles in MASH, The French Connection, One Oof. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Oof, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Oof, Kramer versus <laughs> Kramer. Apocalypse Now, Blade Runner, Love Story, and Superman. You know what's odd? If he was going to be Deckard and Blade Runner, I could see him pulling it off. Oh, you could see him in a lot of these movies. That's the crazy thing. Apocalypse Now, I definitely could see him in. Oh, French Connection, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Absolutely. I think the only one of these where I like kind of raise my eyebrow a little bit is Superman. Because I just can't imagine... 
James Caan with his fucking chest and back hair sticking out of the costume and like a gold chain on just being like, yeah, I'm fucking Superman. I don't know what the fuck you expect me to do. I'm not going to like fucking like, I don't know, put on a cape and like fucking save the day or some shit. I just I can't imagine him as Superman, but like, oh, the dad in Kramer versus Kramer. Fucking absolutely. I can imagine James Caan in that role. Right. Anyway, throughout the 80s, he was in very few films because at the time he was dealing with severe fucking depression after his sister's death, a crazy coke addiction, debt, a car accident, and what he just generally referred to as Hollywood burnout. So after he hit flat broke, he jumped back into acting. He reconnected with Coppola and was in the like post-Vietnam drama Gardens of Stone in 87. He jumped back in for like a quarter of his previous salary because at this point he was a fucking liability and the holding companies that backed the movie were like, yeah, we can't insure this guy. He's a, a problem. And also, too, he was supposed to be in the Holcraft Covenant in 84 and just walked off that fucking production. Wow. So he was like a huge liability at the time and was very much somebody that nobody in the industry wanted to work with. but. He actively pursued this role in this movie. It proved to be like exactly the bump he needed because from this, he's in Dick Tracy, again, the Warren Beatty movie the same year, which is another reason why Warren Beatty didn't star in this movie is because he was fucking busy finishing up Dick Tracy. He's in The Dark Backward the next year, which is a wild fucking weird comedy by Adam Rifkin. Honeymoon in Vegas, which is a great comedy with Nick Cage. The Program, Flesh and Bone, which is a fucking awesome neo-noir, Bottle Rocket, which is Wes Anderson's first movie, Dogville, which is a very strange stage-bound movie by Lars von Trier, which we'll come back to that in a second. He's in Elf, which is now a 100% bona fide fucking Christmas watch-it-every-year classic. We just watched it with uh, Autumn, and now she's old enough to like react to it yep. and everything and then we just fucking talked about him in the other christmas classic santa slay <laughs> join our patreon five dollars a month hear us talk about yeah. santa slay starring wrestler bill goldberg he was also in the show las vegas and then voices and cloudy with a chance of meatballs and like r.i.p we just lost him like what last year year before on the death of other awesome character actor Ray Liotta, he said, not Ray, broken heart emoji. And then somebody named Nostalgia Critic on Twitter said, end of tweet. And James Conn just replied back, do better at a time like this, you rat <laughs> fucking king. <laughs> you fucking rat. I mentioned Barry Sonnenfeld earlier. He shot the movie. This was his last stint as a DP. He shot the Rock the Casbah video for The Clash. He shot... <laughs> Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing for the Coen Brothers. He also shot Three O'Clock High, Big, which was directed by Penny Marshall, who was married to Rob Reiner for a time. He also shot When Harry Met Sally. And then obviously he'd go on next year after Misery to direct his first feature, which was The Fucking Adams Family. And then he also did, obviously, Adams Family Values, Get Shorty, The Men in Black movies, Wild Wild West, like we talked about earlier. So. Khan and Bates apparently butted heads during the shooting because 
of their conflicting acting methods. Khan was very instinctual in the moment. I just got to do what fucking comes to you. No rehearsal. And Bates is used to tons of fucking rehearsal because she has a stage acting background. Yeah, I was about to say. Well, neither one of them were method, but they each kind of had their emotional way of doing it. Because, I mean, you and I both have done stage, granted, mine was all the way back in high school, but it's a lot of fucking rehearsal, even just for a high school production. Yeah, A lot more rehearsal because if you fuck up in the moment, you fuck up. Yeah. With film, you just do it again. You know, so like you got to drill. You know, and you got to get that shit down. And that's just how Kathy Bates was used to working. Reiner recommended to each of them that they should just take their frustration out on each other while filming. There was just some interesting back and forth between them. But like, whatever. They became really close friends afterward. I bet they became friends. Yeah. They had like appeared in interviews since this movie came out and everything else. And you know what? That tension probably made this movie even better from like the little unspoken things between their two characters. It's magic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Fucking screen legend Lauren Bacall plays his publisher, Marcia Sindel, or his agent, I guess. Some of the best fucking noir movies ever to have and have not. The Big Sleep, Dark Passage, Key Largo, Written on the Wind. She is also in Harper, starring Paul Newman, written by William Goldman. She's in the, like, 70s version of Murder on the Orient Express. The Fan, which I think you should check out. That is a very interesting slasher movie, also about fan obsession gone too far. She is also in the Lars von Trier movie Dogville and its sequel, Manderley. She is also in Jonathan Glazer's film, Birth, which is a really fucking weird movie with Nicole Kidman her husband dies and is maybe reincarnated into this 10-year-old. It's weird. Really fucking good soundtrack. Jonathan Glazer, great direction, weird fucking movie. Anyway, the other excellent decision, as we've mentioned earlier, is to expand the role of Sheriff Buster in this movie and make him a more proactive character in finding Paul. The sheriff is played by Richard Farnsworth, who was a stuntman, who specialized in horse riding. I saw that. This guy's movie history is insane. Dude fucking started his career in the 1930s with Gone with the Wind, Red River, Ten Commandments, Spartacus. He started actually getting substantial roles and credits in the early 60s. Dude was doing this fucking job for 30 years before he actually started getting credit for it. His first name credit was at age 43. He's in The Cowboys, Ozana's Raid, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, Blazing Saddles, Outlaw Josie Wales. Obviously, this is a lot of Westerns. Comes a Horseman, which I mentioned earlier, because Farnsworth received a surprising Oscar nomination for that. I guess it was surprising in the sense that, like, where has this guy been this whole time? Oh, shit, he's been working in pictures for, like, 40 fucking years. That movie also stars James Caan, so like, <laughs> I'm curious as to whether James Caan recommended Farnsworth for this movie. A lot of crossover between everyone involved behind scenes. Exactly, right? Which is why I'm kind of talking through a lot of this. He's in this movie called The Gray Fox, which fucking rocks, where he plays an old over-the-hill guy who used to like knock over trains and stagecoaches and shit. The Natural, Misery, and then he's in the remake of The Getaway. And his last fucking movie is The Straight Story, directed by David Lynch, which is 
the most wholesome fucking thing that David Lynch has ever fucking directed. Apparently, it's amazing, too. I haven't watched it. Oh, it's it's great. It's fucking great. It will make you cry like a baby. Anyway, yeah. Farnsworth, super cool. Francis Sternhagen plays his wife. She just died in November, by the way. So she was 93. She was in a shitload of TV. She's in the sci-fi movie Outland. She's in Bright Lights, Big City. Communion, speaking of weird sci-fi alien shit we're going to cover on this show eventually. Doc Hollywood, Raising Cain. And what movie have we covered fairly recently that she was in? Oh, was it, uh, oh my God, with fucking old boy Twin Peaks as the dad. She's in The Mist. The Mist, ah, okay. She's the older lady in the supermarket that is kind of on the good side of things, right? No, because the mom and- You're thinking of Lin Shay. Yeah, I'm thinking of Lin Shay. Yep. While we were rewatching the movie, Heather just kept saying, that's us. That's us. Yeah. Like, as they're, like, flirting with each other. Yeah. (laughs) She just kept saying- you're completely disinterested in me, like, trying to hit on you and, like, flirt with you because you're just, like, so fucking serious about whatever the thing is you're doing. And I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, that is kind of our dynamic. Yeah. So, unfortunately, listeners, your boy has to go give his daughter a bath and put her to bed. So I'm going to let Aaron finish off on his own, if you don't mind, Aaron. Sure. Yeah, let's do this. Go be a dad. Yeah. Go watch Misery. That's my final take. Kathy Bates is phenomenal. This is one of the best movies we've covered on our show. It's generally creepy and unsettling. The slow build is amazing. The violence is shocking. Probably my favorite Stephen King adaptation after The Shining. It might overtake The Shining as I revisit that and this down the line. That's how good this is. Anyway, it's been real. Stay spoopy. Take him out, Aaron. (laughs) All right, cool. Other quick facts and I'll wrap up. So... Fucking the Highway Patrol officer is played by J.T. Walsh, which great to always see him show up in something. The photo of James Caan shaking hands with Queen Elizabeth is a real fucking photo from a film premiere in 1975. I think it's from Funny Lady because I can't fucking imagine Queen Elizabeth going to see Rollerball or The Killer Elite that same year. There is a VHS tape of When Harry Met Sally that's visible in the general store. Likewise, Billy Crystal's reading fucking Misery in a scene of When Harry Met Sally. And then, like I said, this film was a massive fucking success. It debuted at number two behind Home Alone and eventually grossed $61 million on its roughly $20 million budget, which is fucking nuts. So anyway, yeah, like Derek said, Watch this fucking movie. It is a blast. It is fucking hilarious. It is so fucking upsetting. It is so tense. It's good shit. So that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres and discuss just how scary they are for horror movie junkies and newbies alike. As always, thank you, listeners. If you have been listening this long, this is a very long episode, we know. Uh, Obviously, Derek had to jump off to go tend to his children. But yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. Please like, subscribe, follow, whatever the fuck the uh, specific wording is uh, on all podcast platforms at this point. We are still available everywhere, free and ad-free. 
And that is all thanks to our patrons on Patreon, which you can join for just $5 a month. We have tons of bonus content on there at this point. Interviews, franchise deep dives, lists, commentary tracks, all kinds of good shit. So definitely check that out. Tell your friends about the show. Give us some five-star ratings on all those social platforms, which uh, on that note, we are on Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare. Please check us out there. Greatly appreciate it. Big thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for all the music bumps at the beginning and ends of all of our episodes. You can find more of his music on Bandcamp at Opossums, Big Clown, Party Gator. Lots of good shit there. So throw him a couple bucks, get some good music. And uh, from there, just know, listeners, no matter how much you like our show, we are still your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. We'll take good care of you. We're your number one fan, Sally.